Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. We're looking out the window right now, and there's a green heron. Fishing. And when we just looked at that a second ago, and I wanted to mention it, we used to, my old man had a, um, you know, like the drum inside of a washing machine, like in the old, like the, the old days, they just had like these big steel perforated drums inside a top loading washing machine. We used one of those for a live well off of some industrial size washing machine, right? Cause it's already perforated. So you just set it out in the lake throw some rocks in there, some bricks in there. And then you could put all your bluegills and perch in there, right? And wait till you had enough where it warranted cleaning them. So we'd just go down and catch a few and throw them in there. And then when you had this whole thing full, we'd go down and scale them and flay them. But there was this heron that lived on our lake or spent a lot of time hunting our lake. And he would never get in his head that they were, that they were captive, so he would land way the hell down the beach and stalk this thing. <laughs> like just painstakingly sneak up on this thing and then bam, grab a bluegill out of there. And never just got comfortable with the idea. He was like a dude that hunts high fence, right? Where they still go through <laughs> all the like, they get like the camo on, you know, and they, you know, they, they go through all the rigmarole. But then he would just come up and, uh, 
Yeah, never got in his head that he could just land there and, and start eating bluegills. Um, Parker, it's really I'm really glad you're here. Do you mind if we touch on a few things before we start talking mm-hmm. to you? Please do. Okay. Uh, another point to raise, Giannis. You know how you think that. You know how you think that it's stupid that I think that there is confusion around what constitutes a half or whole breast? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think you're burning precious time worrying about that. Check this out. A guy wrote in. He was at the grocery store this weekend, and there was a woman fixing to buy chicken breasts, which were on sale. And she was having a disagreement with the meat purveyor about are you talking about a whole breast or half a breast? He says that at one point in time, she even groped on her body what she thought <laughs> amounted to a breast. And in the end... Hold on. So she was right and the butcher was saying, no, that's she, not a whole breast? No, that's she's a like, half well, what do you mean? I gather that she felt it meant that she should get two or whatever, but that she registered confusion. Mm-hmm. Point being, this is not just the thing that comes down to turkey hunters. Parker, you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. What do you think about that? I think a whole breast is two halves. So if I say I'm going to smoke up a turkey breast, what do you think I'm smoking? I think you're smoking, I think you're smoking a half, but I think it's slang. I think it's slang for, if I say I'm, I'm getting a turkey breast, that means half. But if you're I smoking think, a turkey breast, that means whole. Man, no. I don't know. No, he's still <laughs> saying half. But what he's saying is it's slang. So, but you're saying on a bird. If you were like, I shot him in the breast, you'd be talking about his the, whole both. chest. Correct. A guy wrote in and said, this doesn't even need to be a problem. If we would adopt um, things from the poultry industry where they call them lobes. Because mm. you don't talk about it. You talk about lobes. And then all confusion falls away. I don't know if that word's that appetizing, though. <laughs> smoking up a lobe. lobe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would think it was like he was smoking a joint. It was some slang term yeah. for a type of joint. If some guy says, yeah, I'm smoking up a big old lobe this weekend. I'm like, oh, really? Uh, moving on. Just clearing up a couple of uh, housekeeping issues here. Uh, we just did a podcast about all the, the 9 million acres of landlocked land in the West. And the guy wrote in, he says, I'm not like taking this as a slam on the East because you weren't talking about the East. But he says he spent some time on Onyx. He lives in North Carolina because he knows about a lot of landlocked land around his house in North Carolina. So he spent some time on Onyx and within a 20 minute drive of his home in North Carolina, there are eight. 147 acres of landlocked land around him one chunk he says kind of because it's river accessible but there's no boat launch anywhere there's no public boat launch anywhere near there so it would be hours on the water Ooh, sounds like a really good i know that sounds like a freaking honey hole man he doesn't give any details about where it is a lot of national forests but there's landlocked land within the national forest so he said this is a problem that plagues us as well out here I believe that they said that they're going to be working on more states. The, those 13 Western states is just where they decided to start. Yeah, I think they should. Um, another question. Podcast episode 134, Steve mentioned their bush pilot was dismayed at something they wanted to bring back to town. And I was supposed to talk about it later, but never did. 
What the pilot was dismayed about is that so we had a generator to charge camera batteries, and it was insult. The, the idea was insulting to him that you would move gas <laughs> back to town. Like I think a lot of his career has been spent getting gas out to people in weird places who need gas. And he was insulted by the idea that one would bring a two-gallon can of gas back to town, whereas he explained to us there are gas stations all over the place. <laughs> and wanted us to go find, at least go find a quad runner and pour that gas into it. <laughs> he also had the personality that, like, that's his, that was his shtick, was to be just dismayed at everything. He was That grumpy. wasn't the only thing that got his, got his feathers ruffled up. He, we also were packing out trash. And he gave us a hard time about that. Didn't like the trash. He especially didn't like that we had camera equipment. No one likes that. No one likes Pelican cases. No person in aviation likes a Pelican case. So upon seeing the Pelican cases and asking what's in there and hearing that it was camera equipment. Except for our buddy John Varco. He didn't give a shit. No, but that, that dude's cool. He's next level. That dude's cool. He's a pro. This guy, upon learning what was in our Pelican cases, says, Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one last thing. This is something that's been brewing for a long time. I think people are going to need to start paying a little bit of attention, attention to it. There's two, there's two last things, but this is one of them. In this is going to have like, this could have major ramifications. It's just something that people need to watch. because It's going to go to the Supreme court. Lord knows we've been hearing a lot about the Supreme court lately. Um, meaning who's, who is going to perhaps be sitting on it in the near future. But this has something to do with this. There's a thing that that's going to that's probably get, probably going to be heard in the Supreme Court soon that'll have a big major ramifications for big game. It's called the Herrera case. It started in 2014 when a member of the Crow tribe in Montana was out hunting with two other tribal members, and they went on to national forest land off of the crow reservation out of season with no licenses. They go on to the Bighorn national forest in Wyoming. So they push across the state line into Wyoming and they shoot four trophy sized bull elk, no season, no licenses. Okay. A game warden, uh, hears about this, does an investigation and comes to issue citations to the tribal members. Two of the guys pled to their crime and presumably paid their fine or whatever happened to them. But one of them, Herrera, makes a claim that an 1868 treaty between the United States and the Crow tribe allowed him to hunt unoccupied, this is a quote from the treaty, quote, unoccupied lands of the United States without any sort of state or federal regulation. So he's convicted and his appeals with the Wyoming state court system is denied, but they keep pushing it and they, and they push it up to have it heard by the Supreme court, because this is something that's been waiting to be finally settled for a long time. Some people think it is settled. They think that Bureau of land management land, national forest land is in fact, not unclaimed. It's claimed. Or, you know, un- it's not unoccupied or it's not open and unclaimed, but it's occupied and claimed. And so if it's heard by the Supreme Court, um, it might 
change our definition of this stuff. And if Wyoming loses the case, so it's like Herrera v. Wyoming. If Wyoming loses this case, Wyoming and 10 other states, as well as the federal government, will lose the ability to enforce hunting and fishing laws on any tribal members pursuing wildlife off reservation. Because there are a handful of treaties that use similar language. You could theoretically, depending on how this goes, you could tribal members could theoretically hunt within Yellowstone National Park. So a lot of state uh, state game managers are watching this very carefully and trying to understand like what the implications of this could be. Rich, you cool? I'm cool, man. I did have a thought about breasts, lobes. No, the the tribal thing. Okay, I'm not a subject matter expert, but lay it on me. It's more like a like a racism sort of issue because I remember in Michigan. Go on. There was always like. Uh, growing up, the um, tribe in like Manistee, I think it's the Ottawa, but they could fish salmon out of season. I remember like a bunch of dudes growing up that we fished with were always like, God damn, Indians can fish and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing that because tribal members in the Sioux can snag. Yeah. And then it, it led to like, it, they didn't just focus on that. They then like expanded and then just like became racist against native americans yeah so like i think i i hearing that stuff i'm always just like thinking about like where that'll go socially like where management than, ends and racism begins yeah because i think i mean you gotta you do have to think about the animals if that's the the main issue but then like you know the random person who's like oh goddamn india now gets to come in and shoot this elk out of season or whatever it's like then then it becomes less about like the issue and more about something that isn't really related yeah. but kind of related i understand what you're saying you know and even in um like i look at that so i look at the herrera case and i damn sure know how i hope the if it gets heard in the supreme court i damn sure know what i hope the court says yeah but in the back of my head, I do wonder, mm-hmm. am I tipping that? Like, what are my motivations for tipping the way I'm tipping? Yeah. Is it an us versus them? Yeah. Right? Or is it strictly that I'm viewing as what would be the implications for wildlife management? I feel, and everyone feels this way about themselves, I feel as though... um. I'm not tipping that way out of some latent bigotry. Mm-hmm. I feel as though I'm tipping that way, but it's in the back of my head that is that a thing that's going on in my head? An us, them? Yeah. A we, they? Yeah. I think keeping that in check is important. Yeah, at, at least if you're thinking about it, then I don't think it's an issue. If you're not thinking about it, then it's, then you can get into the the weeds on it. But if you are, if you're conscious of like, oh, is this an us, them? over wildlife if you're already thinking that i think you can have a i think you can make an objective decision you know what's your take on it yanni nothing mm. <clears throat> well i'm with you you know i certainly hope it's gonna you know they'll, they'll decide that it's it is occupied land and throw it out what would be helpful for me too and no one could answer this because we just don't know where things are going down the line 
What would be helpful for me too is to understand the scale of exploitation that we would be talking about. If we knew there was just like very minimal exploitation of the resource, I would feel differently. But you just don't know where things are going to go. And now and then we make rulings and things. Um, we make rulings. Like look at the Wild Horse and Burrow Protection Act, right? We make a ruling and then wind up down the road being like, my goodness, I had no idea that it would cause this level. Like at the time, I couldn't foresee the level of trouble. We would right. be like the Pandora's box that would be opened. Well, yeah, and in that, in this case, it could be one individual that you know if they decided to exercise that right. And uh, I mean, think about if if you went away from elk and went to bighorn sheep, you go in and take out every possible you know regular hunter's opportunity in one unit with a with a couple pulls of the trigger. Yeah. Yeah, you could, someone could do an, uh, a relocation of a handful of bighorns and spend, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars on it. And someone could decide, well, sweet. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks, bro. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no oversight. No game regulation oversight. Hearing that, yeah, it does sound like you need to adjust treaties from the 1800s. To now because well that's the, a the landscape you know, was very different you know sure that's like one of rogan's jokes one of his his latest jokes would be like thomas jefferson coming back and being like hold on a minute you guys haven't changed any part of this <laughs> <laughs> you guys just left it like this <laughs> uh where to begin? Where to begin? I was thinking about that this morning. Oh, how to begin? Yeah. What, do we go complete linear, linear or do we choose a... Set the, set the stage. Choose a species. Set the stage, Giannis. Uh, we're in Missouri, visiting our fr new friend, Parker Hall. Who's been on the show before. Yep, the podcast program. We decided to come back to make a television program and to uh, try to catch... Big giant catfish. Can, by, can I can I interrupt by, you, Mint? Yeah, sure. Speaking of programs, sixteen brand new episodes are up on Netflix right now. Yeah, go watch them and tell all your friends to watch them. And tell your family to watch them. My grandmother, bless her heart, when she was alive, she liked watching meat eater. She's not really into watching hunting or hunting. Didn't let me tell hunting stories, so tell everybody to watch it. It's good shit. Go on now. Um. Yeah, so we're trying to catch a uh, big catfish by a method called bank polling and then uh, go and shoot a few squirrels behind Parker's dog. That's those, correct. Those are our like, main activities while we're here. And uh, yeah, I was just having a hard time deciding whether we I wanted to talk squirrels first or catfish first. Let's set the table like this. I got a good way to set the table. Parker, explain <clears throat> why. Explain why it's good right now to go for flatheads and shitty right now to go for squirrels. Well, in short order. <laughs> uh, winter's coming to Missouri, although it doesn't seem like it this week. Um, no. 
Chiggers are out. Chiggers are out. (laughs) 90 degrees. But this time of year, those flatheads, uh, I think, really put on the feed sack, getting ready for that slow time where they're inactive. They're laying on the bottom, and they're just trying to wait for spring to get through get through winter. So they really get active this time of year, and it's it makes for good fishing, good bank polling. The reason it's bad for squirrel hunting uh, with a dog, uh, it, it's good squirrel hunting without a dog right now. You think, like, good? Yeah, this is the time. This is the mast is out. The squirrels are in the trees cutting nuts and, and getting ready. Same thing. Winter's coming, you know, real active, a lot of white oak acre. And so this is the time you could slip around. And we talked about it before, you know, slipping through the trees and, and seeing them and listening and hearing them. And you can, you can kill them. With the dog, it's bad for that same reason. With the dog, the squirrel has to come down out of the tree, get on the ground, mess around. The dog uses its nose to chase a squirrel back up a tree. The squirrel then hides, and you find it. Well, with leaves all over the canopy, so dense and thick, it's almost impossible to find the squirrels. Almost. Um, During the winter months, January, February, there's no leaves. The squirrels are much easier to find and much more um, able to be harvested. Yeah, and then it's bad for creeping through the woods. Bad. It can almost get real bad for creeping through the woods. Almost impossible. Because they they're so paranoid. Yeah. They're so paranoid because they're so exposed. I think to, to avian predators, when there's no leaves, they're just paranoid. Yeah, they you can, almost they can see it coming hunt. from a mile away. Yeah. The, the, the forest floor this time of year is year-old leaves that have been rained on and decayed and just inherently it's quieter uh, when uh, this fall when all the leaves come down they're new brittle man it's crunch 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 they can hear you see from great distance yeah, that's a good point man i mean i've known that but never thought about it yeah. you're right right now it's the quiet like this time before the leaves start to fall is the quietest the woods will get because the leaves are the most decayed right Makes for good slipping. Yeah. Yeah, because even that's in, a great even, point. Even man. in the spring, you know, you would think that through the winter and you know, but remember how crunchy it was when we were down here in Missouri turkey hunting? Yeah, very crunchy. It was loud. It's really frustrating to hunt squirrels right as the leaves come down. Like you remember, like we were hunting Doug's place for squirrels, just like the only with the leaves down and new leaves down on the ground, you had to just go out and sit. Get into a likely spot before dark and just sit. And, and just lean against a tree and wait for one to come into your zone. But then when you blouch, it's like, you know, everybody knows then. And it just starts over. It's like really hard to have a great day. We used to hunt them around Christmas time. And, man, it was tough hunting. If you got a squirrel, you'd be doing good around that time of year. And you've done it before. This time of year, particularly when they're cutting hickories, you can shoot several out of one tree shoot them with a 22 or whatever and the others don't even hardly check up eating just that shoot another one you know sometimes you can kill three or four out of one tree not like that in the winter no um what next yas have you thought about how you want to dig in let's talk flatheads linear that's how i vote you vote in linear Mm -hmm. do you want to can you introduce yourself you've never been on the show before Michael Linnemuth, cameraman, first time 
on the show. First time filming the show. And you're taking a cameraman's uh, a show business sensibility to this discussion. You want linear? Yeah. Okay. That would mean that we start out with a really, I don't want to call it a bad, but a disappointing squirrel hunt. Absolutely. And that's going to open up one of the big questions I have is what in the hell happened between that morning and last night? Is there like an explanation? Well, there's infinite explanations that you go through in your head. I don't know one of them is correct. Weather changed. We'll get sure. to that. Yeah. But let's start out with that day. So we're down in we're down in Missouri and we go to Mark Twain. You don't mind like you're really oh, because you're moving anyways. Yeah, man. <laughs> you're moving anyways. Plus Mark, go, Mark Twain's a big ass forest. Yes, huge. Mark Twain National Forest. Now anyone who's uh ha, who's had the pleasure, the joy of reading uh Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, uh and then all Mark Twain's beautifully written accounts, nonfiction accounts of working on the river boats on the Missouri and Mississippi. Um, know that Mark Twain should know that Mark Twain from Han- was born in Hannibal, raised in Hannibal, Missouri. Was a river man. His name was Samuel Clements. His pen name was Mark Twain, and his pen name came from. Uh, when you're running river boats on the river, and in the old days, the river channel would just change constantly. It still does. It still shifts, but I mean, it would shift wildly. Like the river was nothing like it was today because this is prior to when they channelized it and levied it and everything. Um, and it would just move. It was a meandering channel. And it was, running the river was very difficult in, in the paddle wheel boats. Um, they'd run aground all the time. And there'd be a guy whose job it was to stand up in front of the boat, and he had a weighted line. So he's got a rope with markings that with knots tied in it and a weight on it. And as you're going through a treacherous spot, he's up there hucking that weight out ahead of the boat. The weight hits the bottom, and he counts the marks on the line to tell depth. And if I'm not mistaken, Yanni could check into this for us just to fact check me. If I'm not mistaken, they knotted the rope at three-foot increments. Safe passage was six feet of water. And I believe that as he's up there yelling out the marks, the river, the, the guy who's doing the depth soundings, Mark Twain was two marks, which meant safe passage. And so drawing upon that, you know, his drawing upon his heritage and time spent upon the river, Samuel Clemens took the pen name Mark Twain. So the Mark Twain National Forest uh, became that. What do you think about that, Parker? I uh, thought it just occurred to me. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> and maybe we'll get to it later. Uh, pounder over there, similar to the depth checking. Hmm. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we'll definitely touch. Yeah. We'll definitely touch on Ridge Pounder's uh, attempt at taking a depth sounding. <laughs> There's not a case of like what happens on the river stays on the river sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so we go to Mark Twain National Forest. And you, because because you being a squirrel man and a river man, <laughs> um, and you took you you grew up in Georgia, yeah, and it was real common to have. Can I make a correction? Oh, really? Yeah, you were just off. bad. Just a, no, just a little bit, but it's not three feet; it's six for a fathom. And so, actually, safe passage was twelve. Well, how the hell are you going to get anywhere at twelve feet? Really? 
Must not have been John Boats. Uh, it's a no. They're, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're talking steam, steam sta- safe depth for the steamboat. Twelve feet of water. Yep. So there's fathom soundings. Yep. And the second mark is mark number two. Mark Twain. Sing, sing it out. Mark Twain. Ha- is, here it just says half Twain, quarter Twain, Mark Twain. No shit. Fathom soundings. I had no idea those boats drew that much water. Huh. Now you know. Do me another favor, man. I'm going to keep talking to Parker about being from Georgia and everybody has squirrel hounds and whatnot. Pull up Mark, like two or three of Twain's dooziest quotes, please. Can do that. So there you are in Georgia. Everybody's got a squirrel dog. I don't know that I would go as far as to say everybody, but more common than the other places I've lived. If you want to know how legitimate Parker Hall is as as a houndsman, he used to hunt coons with a man named Festus. If that doesn't <laughs> if that doesn't establish some legitimacy, that's like out of a Jerry Clower story. Hunting coons with a man named Festus. Yeah, I've never met a Festus. I've never heard of a Festus so, with it. Overall, yeah, and he wore and yeah. Also, out of Jerry Clower, is Festus wore overalls with no shirt beneath it. (laughs) And you know, you said another thing. Didn't you tell me that? Yeah. And another thing you told me that was funny because we're about the same age. Yeah. You're in your early Mm forties. Um, I guess I'm approaching mid now, forty four. But. You mentioned like when those mag lights came out. Yeah. They were like baseball bats. Now yeah. people thought they were so, we thought it was like, uh, like it was, it, rev, it was like a revolutionized being out at night. Right. When those big, you'd put those three or four big D cell batteries into a mag light and you thought you were <laughs> invincible, man. <laughs> now you can have a flashlight the size of your index finger that throws a bigger beam than that. But remember like the one thing that everybody wanted, it was like, for five years in a row, only thing anyone got for Christmas was a D-cell mag light. Yeah. Got they the just got light. longer and longer, man. You'd install the little holster in your car. Yep. Oh, I had that holster. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could screw it into your dashboard truck, <laughs> a thing that held your light there. And they had that rubber ring that you could put on your waist belt. No, yeah. And they got longer to the point <laughs> where they were like baseball bats and policemen carried them around. <laughs> mag light was tearing it up. And then they got like something happened to them. I don't know, man. They weighed like sixteen pounds, and you yeah, could load everything up, and hey, you got the mag. Oh yeah, oh, got the <laughs> mag. Like Let's running go. traps at night. Like everything yeah. was different when mag light came on the scene. Yeah, big, and you'd get in your stocking. Like you'd get that light, and your stocking would just be full of D cell batteries. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a whole era, man. God, people got excited about those. So, um. Yeah, and tell the kind of dog you got. A little bit about the dog's lineage. Not that particular dog's lineage, but the breed, you know, and what a cur and a feist and all that is. So there's two main, I mean, there's a lot of different dogs that are tree squirrels. I mean, I've seen Black Labs tree squirrels, but. Reliably? No, not reliably. You know, they're not bred to do that, but you'll get one every once in a while that'll that'll tree a squirrel. But mostly the the tree dogs are the you know a, a blue any of the in any of the coon hounds will tree squirrels and some guys so walker those, sure. blue tick red bone yeah they'll all tree squirrels mm-hmm. why don't squirrel men use them 
because they're a lot rangier and they want to run and, and trail on the ground and put something up a tree. Now, a lot of squirrel men do use um, some of those hounds, some of those bigger hounds. It just depends on what. Um, when you say what, ranger, you mean they're running out too far. Yeah, they run, want to run far. You know, the squirrel dogs generally stay a little closer, check back in with you. You know, those, the curs and the feists will go out, run a little circle. Um, they use their eyes uh, as well as their nose a little bit more than a hound will. A hound is just nose to the ground kind of trail up a tree, bark tree. So there's these these dogs are um, uh, bred for small game hunting and chase. And uh, the one I have is is a cur called a tring cur, um, and it's because of the size um, this particular this particular dog. Um, the feist dogs are a little bit smaller. Like um, you hear a lot of uh, people like Jack Russell's treeing squirrels. I think people have tried those. That's that's kind of like a feist size. These curs can get get pretty pretty big, you know. And it's a sh- it's a measurement at the shoulder. Measurement at the shoulder to distinguish a feist from a cur. Right. Feist being smallest and yours is like one size up from right, a feist. Right. Right. So mine would be a, a small cur. And when, if someone goes to get one of these, how do you go about getting one, and how much does it cost to get one? The gentleman that I got my squirrel dog from charges $200, and he always has, and I think he probably always will, just because it's squirrel man honor code. He's not in it to make money. He's in it to produce high-quality squirrel dogs and give them to squirrel hunters. And, uh, you know— This is life's passion. That's his calling. That's what he does. He it's likes calling, to— And yeah. you, were, you were actually mentioning to me that you heard of somebody selling a squirrel dog for, like, 20 grand or something. I heard that a squirrel dog has fetched 20 grand. Man, I would like to. But I think, but this is, this is the competition squirrel dog. Uh, And I didn't verify this, but I heard it from a, from a very reliable source that there has been a case of a single squirrel dog selling for that. But I think it's an anomaly. Right? It would have to be. It'd be like saying, hey, how much does a car cost? And then you talk about how much a car costs. You're like, oh, you can get, you know, most sedans or this. And then some guy's like, oh, one time a car sold for it, right? Yeah. That isn't like, it's not really relevant. I kind of want to meet the man who paid $20,000 for a squirrel dog. Because that must be a heck of a good squirrel man. (laughs) I got a feeling he's doing something besides squirrel hunting. Yeah, I agree. I think he came came into some money. Somewhere along the way. So 200 bucks, and this dude doesn't want, you're saying too that this guy, he won't, like if you said, I just like the looks of that dog, I just want it for a house dog, he's not interested. He's not really interested in that. No, I, He wants them in the hands of squirrel hunters. Absolutely. He produces high quality squirrel dogs. Not saying I have a great dog, but he, he's had some good dogs with great lineage, and he's known in, in that part of the country for having really good squirrel dogs. And his breed comes out of, you were saying kind of comes out of Alabama, or his type of dog? Yeah, Alabama, right. Mm-hmm. That's where he is, and and you know, I, I don't I don't want to speak to the man's lineage of where he got all of his dogs, but I know some of it's out of that you know, East Tennessee, Western North Carolina Smoky Mountain area. Um, uh, and he has his own, own line of squirrel dogs that he's worked hard to, to develop. What, uh, growing up, how old were you when you got your first squirrel dog? Um, I was, I wasn't too young. I was maybe in high school, ninth, 
tenth grade, ninth grade, maybe to get tenth grade, own. maybe Did yeah. Your dad and it was one? kind. Of, no, it was kind of a. Um, it was, you know, we knew guys that that had squirrel dogs. We'd been hunting with them before, but we had a uh, somebody gave us a dog that was half cur, half feist, and we didn't do anything. We actually had him to as a hog dog. What's that mean? To oh, chase running, hogs, running yeah. hogs, right? It was kind of just a, a mixed up old nasty looking dog and we'd take him hog hunting and turn him loose and he'd run off and tree squirrels and all the other dogs he's like he wasn't interested in hogs he wanted to tree squirrels <laughs> he's a squirrel and, man. and my brother and i were like hey man we're, we're into something um you know we'd always squirrel hunted you know from the time we were little bitty kids uh, we'd always squirrel hunted hard but it was early season hickories and slipping around this time of year you know but we got into the squirrel dog and then man we it, it took off We've had one ever since. Did you have to train your dog, or is it like out of the box, ready to go? And, and somebody else was asking me this question, and you know, the different dog breeds are kind of bred to want to do their thing. Like a retriever, if you get a tennis ball in the yard and throw it and throw it and throw it, it wants to bring it. It back. wants to bring it back. Now, the difference between a yard dog that'll fetch a tennis ball and a good duck dog you know, day and night. So you work with them a little bit, but they, you know, the instinct to do that activity is in them. When you, when he's tree, when, when a squirrel dog goes out and trees a squirrel, you think that he normally needs to, that that squirrel has come down and hit the ground. Right. Unless he just catches a glimpse of it or hears it or whatever. But typically he's nose of the ground and he finds where a squirrel has hit the ground. Is he like a rabbit beagle where he can run that trail back and forth and tell which direction the squirrel went? Yes. And you can see when uh, the dog's working. Sometimes it'll go up a tree, look up it, maybe stay, maybe go off and check all the trees around and then come back and tree on that tree um, and then identify that, that, that the squirrel's in there. Now, we had several run, and you could tell um i was telling you i said the squirrel's on the ground and the dog you can see that that high yipping yip 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 kind of like a beagle and then up the tree the squirrel goes and then you hear that tree bark that repetitive and then you know it's in the tree and then there's a sound he makes when you know that he's seen the squirrel yeah that's the yeah that's the squeal you know just the i cannot contain myself noise and it's different every time you know and you so and i can tell that the dog has seen the squirrel it's it's the squeal bark oh my god i can't take it noise yeah it's funny because all the noises he makes you know the noise that he makes for he he doesn't know what's going on right it's she ruby yep man since hunting with that dog i've got that song stuck in my head that old kenny rogers song ruby don't take your love to town yep where it's a guy that uh went off and got sent off to vietnam and got paralyzed and came home and can't satisfy all of his woman's needs and he understands the wants and needs of a woman her age but she goes into town at night and he's imploring her to not take her love into town i remember and he says if i could move i'd get my gun and i'd put her in the ground Mm. just a hurtful song man (laughs) Had that song stuck in my head since hunting with that dog, Ruby. Where was I going with that? I don't know. Oh, yeah. So you're out hunting, and the dog's making all these noises, and it makes some noises where you just think that it, it's just 
it's just something. It senses something's going on. There's something that goes on and you're listening. And I'm watching you listen and you're saying it's chasing one. There's sort of a non-committal kind of, hey, this might be the tree. Right. There's a, this is the tree. And then there's, this is the tree. And not only that, but I have seen it in the tree. I have seen the squirrel hurry come now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when you run to the woods. Right. And then, okay, this is the hard thing. You don't really know what's in the dog's head, but how can it tell? Like if you picture, picture you're sitting in the woods watching squirrels and a squirrel comes along comes down a tree spirals down a tree hits the ground runs 50 yards and spirals up another tree it surprises me that the dog can tell that the scent on one end of that is older than the scent on the other end of it but unless what help might help answer it is what is the time stamp on the scent that will interest that dog in the evening is it running a morning scent no so it's deal. It deals in fresh. It deals in fresh, fresher than like a hound would. A hound, some of those hounds can get take very old tracks. The the squirrel dogs work on fresher. Yeah, yeah. Within you know, I think within minutes. I got you. Right. Because a lion hound, he'll go out and work an eight hour old track, yeah. but a lion hound can't tell you what way the lion went. Yeah. Is dealing in just faint residual odor and can't make a and can't say like relative to fifty yards over there, this scent is newer here. And so when a lion hound's running a lion, he might be running the wrong direction. You yeah. got to find a track to verify the line of travel. Well, it makes sense because you know a squirrel's home range is. I don't know the actual answer to that, but I'm going to guess you know, a couple hundred square yeah. yards, right? And a lion's going. You know, ten miles. Oh yeah, I bet you know. it's day in day out activities. A squirrel uses an acre of ground. I mean, what would you think? Yeah, I think so. That's fair. Probably moves couple, according to see like seasonal big, movements. Of but, course, yeah, of course. I always it's really interesting you mentioned that because given the opportunity, I would want to be able to have the sense of smell that a dog has just to see what that's like. Like wow. A deer ran through here, and I know what that is. Or a squirrel ran up this tree. Or, you know, the sensory overload must be amazing for a dog to be able to pick that out. Uh, yeah. yeah. Step into a dog's head, running through the woods for, right. for a minute to be like, oh, so this is what it's experiencing. Yep. You can't, no. Because, like, you know, we'll go out, you'll go out and you'll get a whiff. You'll be like, oh, it's smell something rotten somewhere. Or I smell elk, like elk have been here. But really, you're just not. You know, we got we got our eyes and we got our ears. Right. And then you think that, that his nose is more important to him than those two things. It's really hard to picture seeing the world that way. Yeah, it is. And if you watch anybody's dog, if you watch your dog, it could be youth, what you think asleep and watch its nose work. I mean, it senses things with his nose. I think a dog's nose, or maybe many animals, is their number one sense. Uh, ours would be our eyes. I think it's I think it's olfactory. Yeah, for animals. And your dog does use its ears because it knows the word squirrel. It does. And you need to be careful to not say squirrel around that dog, or let it see a squirrel 
when driving down the road. Yeah, we were driving to the hunting spot, and a squirrel ran out on the road, and you quickly reached back and blindfolded the dog with your hand <laughs> for fear that it would see that squirrel. What happens when she sees one? If you will look at the dashboard of my truck, you will see the claw marks and the nose slobber on the windshield from the inside. And she barks loud. You know, you, you hear her outside, but inside the car, it's a deafening sound. <laughs> <laughs> and it's repetitive and fast. And yeah. I can't make her be quiet. It's something I think that even I've only been on three or four dog squirrel hunts, but like it takes some getting used to, you know, you, you, like I, I could see my dad being annoyed and me having to be like, look, it's just like after a while, three, four days, it, it's just normal, right? That dog's just going there and it's like a part of it. But at first it's a little jarring to yeah. be in the woods with something that loud. Except at, at home, when I'm at home and there's a yard squirrel and she goes to barking and treeing at it, I know that's what she's wanted, what she wants to do, and I have her, but it annoys me to the nth degree. It really does. It's like barking dogs. Be quiet. Mm-hmm. So when, when we struck out from the little parking area there <laughs> on Mark Twain National Forest, um, hold on, I got another question. Go ahead. So at home, because I'm thinking about going squirrel dog hound for our first family But dog. you live two hours away from squirrel hunting. I know, but just now, because I was reading up about some cur stuff, and there's a bunch of different cur-type dogs, and, and they're, a lot of them are very versatile. Mm-hmm. You know, they can, they can run cougar tracks and squirrels. They can defend your uh, family from... Uh, from what? Cougars, bears, um, and... <laughs> you that? <laughs> Dude, I don't. You've Just been a watchdog. To, you've been to my house lately. You know, little kids running around, man. If they're a hundred yards away from the oh, house, oh yeah, like, like notify you. Sure, or yeah, give my kids a chance to freaking not get eaten. Like it's it is a slight possibility in my house. I called in the bull moose on Yanni's property. Yeah, almost got your kids trampled, or your kids <laughs> thought they were going to get trampled. My kids did not like that, man. That bull came in hot, and he'd seen that. He'd seen video of me get charged by a moose, and that's what was running through his head. <laughs> Yeah, he he got nervous, man. All right, so but so here's my deal. Yeah, I'm two hours away from good squirrel hunting, but I've got a pile of pine squirrels mm. at right like thirty yards from my house. Right. Have you ever tried and, that? Yeah. Am I going to be able to train my dog to say, "Don't worry about those squirrels. We want gray fox squirrel. squirrels or gray squirrels." It, it's a delicate balance. When the dog first starts treeing, you're gonna ha- you're gonna have to shoot those things down. You can't tell it not to do that. And you can eat them; they're not bad. Yeah, so they're edible. You're gonna they're have not, they're to. not great like a gray squirrel or fox squirrel. You're saying they're super small. It's just small. It's like they're, they're you know yeah bigger than a chipmunk. Smaller. They sit right between a chipmunk and a gray squirrel. Mm. And people say they taste like turpentine or piney. It's just a squirrel meat. So it's. I'm going to put a couple into the crock pot in the next week or two. I'm going to bring back some, um, I'll give you some notes. Dude, you braise them down. Like what I've done with those things, I've just put them in a crock pot, braise them down, pick the meat, season the meat, put it on a taco, put it on a tortilla. Delicious. It's just as meat, right? Could be people, cat, could be anything in there (laughs) when you do it like that. It just tastes like meat. Yeah, it's just a taco. No one in the world will come over. You serve that to them, they're going to be like, hmm, pine squirrel? It just isn't. (laughs) You know, you could just take up pine squirrel hunting. Yeah, why not? That's you would be the first guy I think <laughs> to be like a tree pine squirrel. But here's the thing, though. Here's the problem with that. 
is it's not that helpful in pine where pine squirrels live and the kind of trees they live in. Knowing what tree he in is in isn't very helpful. Oh, unless the dog could pressure him into a tree that he didn't want to be in. Because if he goes to his preferred tree, the density of these trees, mm. he goes up some big mature fir or whatever. Evergreens. The density, the, 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 the home trees are so big and so dense and they go so high that's like, it's not that helpful. Yeah, that's a good point. To know where he is up there. You'd need binoculars. Yeah, you need a chainsaw. <laughs> or like Jerry Clower, one of Jerry Clower's stories, the guy that has the rack, the monkey that he hunts with, and he sends the monkey up in trees with a flashlight and a pistol. Maglite. If you had, <laughs> if you had a monkey like that, you'd be in business. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. 
I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this SolarStream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Um, You good on that? Yeah. Well, you know, here's another quick question as long as we're on the subject because my kids sorely want a dog, and I sorely don't want them to have a dog. But if I do get one for them, I want it to serve my purposes as well. What are the chances that you'd have an ace squirrel slash cottontail dog? Very high. Ooh. The litter mate to Ruby is a really good cottontail and squirrel dog. Like, so much so something's he, gotta sacrifice though, right? There's like there's no way it's great at both. Or is, is this dog great at both? The the gentleman who has this dog is a retired gentleman who hunts every day. And those dogs, like Giannis was saying, are really versatile. And any dog, you get them in the field day after day after day. And and they they pick up what what you're going after. Um I, I don't know. It's the you know, it's a good dog, both. I'd take it either way. But what, you, know, you know how a beagle runs a rabbit? Like, not that he runs a rabbit. It's like a rabbit runs a loop. Yep. When a rabbit's spoot, he's going to run a loop, go out, and he's going to come back to his home, his safe spot, his home spot. And that's how you hunt with a beagle. Is The beagle starts a trail, and you just get to, to the, somewhere on the circumference of the loop and wait because he's just going to do his loop and come by. Now, will it? Will a squirrel dog run that loop with him, or does he just kind of function as a flushing dog? From what I've seen, the squirrel dog is running around, and when it jumps a rabbit, it'll run it. It'll run the loop. And it runs it a lot faster than a beagle wheel. And I think it's it may be head up just getting the – Getting the scent behind the rack. Yeah, they're slow-ass dogs. Short legs. Don't, right. Do, they don't do anything quick. Yeah. With with the with the Kerr Feist dog, it's generally a pretty quick loop. Yeah. You know, we used to have a lab that we, we was our waterfowl duck, dog, and it was very good. I mean, this some bitch. This dog would pull ducks out at 18 inches of water all the time, man. It'd pick up the scent on the surface and stick its head down there and find that thing. It'd bring you ducks that other guys killed. You'd go out in the swamp. You wouldn't even have fired a shot yet, and the dog would be standing there with a duck. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a great dog, but we would take it cottontail hunting, and she would just be a good flusher. Yeah. Because she knew the story. She knew what was going on and would go into likely patches of cover that you didn't want to go into, and she hunted close and would just kick up rabbits. It would have never in a million years occurred to that dog chase it to chase it mm. just flushed and one time the one time i think that it saw a rabbit and chased it my buddy shot the rabbit and later in the day i was wondering why my dog was bleeding out of her nose and i pinched her nose and squirted a shotgun pellet out of her nose but no one would fess up mm. so she was chasing it close enough at some point in time where she caught a stray pellet you know yeah but that's an interesting thing man if i could get one 
The guy you know that has the one that does both, what would he sell that dog for? Oh, man, I don't know that he'd sell it. How old is it? It's Ruby's litter mate, three years. Oh, and how many years can you get out of one? Oh, on the squirrel dogs, they can get old. Um, man, you can hunt them for, heck, 12, 13, 14 years. Seriously? Yeah, they start slowing down. No, any dog, when it gets that age, slow down, but it'll tree them. Yeah. So you can, like, your dog's three, and it's already a crack hound. It's coming along. Dude, the dog. She's coming along. When we're out in the woods, the dog spends more time barking up a tree than it does anything else. It finds squirrel after squirrel after squirrel after squirrel. Some days. So we, we strike <laughs> we strike off we strike off from the parking spot. My first question to you was so who is in charge? Right. So the dog, we're somewhat in charge. The dog's hunting for us. We're not hunting for it. Um, so we can direct it in a direction, but I generally try to hunt into the wind because the dog naturally wants to work into the wind. Um, so I kind of think about that. and You might even park your truck accordingly or whatever. I, I do. Yeah. And just because she'll naturally drift that way. And so if you think about that, it makes for a little easier hunt. Then you can call her, and, and unlike a hound, those those smaller curs and feists, they'll, they'll respond to you calling them off. You know, like a big hound, sometimes you put them on a track, and man, they're gone. You, you, the stopping point is who knows where. Oh, and then you got like GPS collars right, and shit the on them, thing. and they're in some other county, and you're driving around all night no. trying to find them. Right. Yeah. So those dogs will stay within earshot, and, and they're bred to come check back in with you every once in a while. Yeah, your dog is very responsive to your whistle. Right. Where right. you can call it off a tree. Yeah. And and that's that's because oftentimes when you stay with the dog enough and you whistle to it, it knows you want it and you're going to put it on something to do something oh. else. You know what I mean? Like uh, we, I guess we'll get to it, but uh, a squirrel to hit the ground and you go over there and it's not there. You need to call the dog over to trail the squirrel up to see where it went. Yeah. And and you know once it figures that out, it'll come to you. So what was going on that first morning we hunted? Because your dog must have treed a dozen times. Yeah. So part of it was the squirrel gods. And we got one. It must have treed a dozen times or more. And we got one. Yeah, but a lot. some of that was a roll of the dice, too, because several of them were giving us a slip. We saw some more. We couldn't get shots at. I missed one. Uh, Yeah, you missed one. And, And so... I don't know. Had we killed what we saw, we'd have had four or five. I mean, what did we end up with one the first day, first morning? We got one. And then last night we go out for a third of the time and get nine. Right. Yeah. Did we have any getaway last night? The fir- very first, first one. Got one. Away. Oh, that's right. Went into a hole. After we watched them for 20 minutes. Yeah. Down when the you- tree, right into a hole. And I told you, like, when they hit the ground running. They know where they're going. They are going to a spot. They're not oh, blindly running. That squirrel beeline. He knows his turf. Right. He knows his turf. We had a bear biologist in one time who was talking about doing some research. Was it, what state was he doing that black bear research in? North Carolina. And he finds that black bears. Oh, Tennessee, are, was it? Tennessee, that's right. Yeah. In this particular area where he was doing his work, black bears den. 20 feet up in trees in hollow trees <laughs> which raises the question how many trees have a black bear sized cavity 20 feet up not many and how they ever get to where 
right, how they ever get to knowing those cavities. And I think, was he saying that it was typically in chestnuts? It was a mast, I can't remember what, I had to go read this to it. It was a mast, they typically dend in a mast producing tree. And the only thing you can think is that they're going up there. They're climbing into these things to harvest mast crops. And they're taking note, oh wow, there's a large cavity that I will come back to months from now and utilize as a denning site. Because how would you ever have that level of spatial awareness? It's like they're not operating on just like stupidly going through the woods. Climbing trees. Yeah, you're right. When a squirrel beelines off on the ground, he's like, I know a place that I can fit into and this annoying ass thing behind me <laughs> cannot get can't me. fit into it. Right. And then he goes into a into a hole with a two and a half inch, four inch diameter orifice. That's not a word you get to use very much in a way like in this kind of conversation. Orifice. No. It's a nice word. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't used it in days. <laughs> so he goes into the orifice. Um a lot of the squirrels we lost on our first day out would be that the dogs treeing. Do you guys use bade or is that just something more for hounds? We use the word treeing. If it's up a tree, bade would indicate to me on the ground. Oh. Uh, more so than in a tree. Okay. So there he is treed and you go and right away you look and 15 feet up the tree, whatever. There's just like a squirrel gnawed hole. <laughs> And then you know where that squirrel went. Yeah. You say they sometimes will pass the hole by. Sometimes they will. And it, it, you go, well, let's go. Like, oh, no, there he is, 15 feet above it in a crotch trying to hide. Like he passed it up. He passed it up. But you know what I've seen in the past? Hunting deer. I've seen a squirrel try to go in a hole. And then another squirrel come out and kick his ass. Right. Not his hole. Yeah. And I've seen a mink fight a squirrel through the squirrel's hole wow yep the mink was trying to go in the hole to raid the young and the squirrel is at the entrance to the hole fighting so voraciously that the mink is you ever hear a mink screech yeah the mink is screeching and they're dueling it out at the hole so it could be that he goes in gets his ass kicked and then has to shoot up and be in a less than yeah, optimum position. <laughs> yeah. The other squirrel's like, no room at the end, bro. Right. <laughs> I wonder if that's the offspring of the squirrel that's in that hole. Oh. Like, that squirrel knows that hole's there, but... He's not welcome. Not welcome anymore. It'd be like, the, like you see the, your, your kid's car coming down the driveway with cops behind him. Right. <laughs> he just locked the doors. <laughs> <laughs> so that happens. And then there's another thing that happens is you guys call it treed out. Jerry Clower calls it tapping the tree. Tapping the tree. But it'd be that the, the squirrel dog is on the ground. And he's like a squirrel crossed through here. He was going this way to this way. And he went up this tree. But the dog, unless he saw it or heard it, he has no way to know what the squirrel did after he went back into his arboreal environment. Exactly. Therein lies the problem. Therein lies a big problem because I noticed. You know how Yanni's really good at spotting squirrels? Well, let me tell you why. It's, it's not that he's good at it. It's not that he's good at it. Here's what I figured out. Here's what I figured out. 
in his role as a producer, he know he understands his role as a producer, and he's there observing, mm. and he's got camera guys doing their job. A squirrel bays up. They're the tree dog trees, squirrel dog trees. Ridge Pounders with his camera with me. Michael's with his camera with you. Not bleeding. Yep, not bleeding because he's not pushing through briars hard. Right. <laughs> Seth, have you said anything yet, Seth? Uh, yeah, you yeah, yeah, early. <laughs> Real early. Yeah. Podcast. You did say something earlier? Yeah, a little, a little something. About how Idaho's too steep to get built out. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, your theory about how Idaho's the, the, these hunts. That, that's fine, man. You can steer everybody you want to Idaho. I don't care. Yeah. So uh, Seth's got a camera. He's trying to look up in the treetops and find the squirrel. I look at what you're doing, and I watch your line of approach, and I'm trying to do 180 off your line of approach. So if you imagine there's the tree, and then you have a circle around the tree, you want one guy on each side of the tree. Right. Because if you're both standing on one side of the tree, the squirrel's just going to squirt around and paste his body up against the other side of the tree and hide. And so you got to get one guy on each side to try to make him move. And then if he moves, everybody's got a chance to see him. So we're doing that. And I move into shotgun range. And I get on my side, and you're on your side, and we got the camera guys. And Yanni can't crowd the action, right? He needs to stay clear of the action. So in in wondering, like, how is he spotting so many damn squirrels getting away? It's because he's getting back enough, right? Where he's not looking in the one tree that the dog smelled the squirrel going to. He's looking in the three or four trees in the cluster that the squirrel's actually in. Because the squirrel probably tapped the tree. The tree. So I later, yesterday, after wondering like why he was so on fire and feeling <laughs> and feeling inflamed with jealousy, <laughs> thinking about maybe sh- shoot giving him a Dick Cheney in him, <laughs> right? Just that because I'm so annoyed. Right. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna stand back like this too and take in the big view, because. The dog knows the tree, but these trees, the spacing on them isn't great. Mm-mm. And I think a lot of times, yeah, he went up and very smoothly just hid in the next tree. And so you can't just look in his tree. No. It's the grouping of trees. The periphery. Yeah. And that's how you pick off squirrels. Yeah. Don't run into the crop. Don't run into the stump looking up. Right. Stand back and get the view. Right. Because... Another thing that would happen is, and, and you brought this up, the, the squirrel will eventually get overwhelmed with anxiety. Yeah. Have to move. Like, can't take it anymore. It could be six, seven minutes into staring up there. Like, you're staring up there, and you do not see the squirrel. He's gone. And you're ready to wander off. And all of a sudden, Giannis is hooting and hollering about, there he goes. There he goes. Because the anxiety got to him. And he panicked. Yeah, although I might be observing like more of the periphery, and I might have less blinders on. You're still than, the eagle. Than, than, no, no, no. <laughs> still the laughing eagle. I think that you know we killed nine. Be careful not to be fooled by coincidence. Because remember, there's like more than two sides to a tree. If you two are covering two angles, I'm gonna go to the angle that you guys can't see. And the coincidence was that all of a sudden, you know, he popped up on that side, and you know, I saw him. 
I don't know, man. You were spotting a lot of damn squirrels, man. If we did, if there was a hundred and I had pulled ninety of them, then I okay, we'd have to, you know, say sure. But I, I don't know. I think I, it was a market difference. You he <laughs> spotted, spotted a lot of squirrels. Seth spotted some too, and he spotted a lot of squirrels not in the tree we were looking in. Right. That I learned a real lesson there, man. Mm-hmm. It's different this time of year because you're dealing with the canopy so much. You know, you can scan those, that periphery of trees when there is no canopy and the leaves are down. Pretty easy, you know, and you, you get to know where they are. And the difference is now there's, just because there's leaves, they go to the same spots. I notice, I'm like, what they, is it different? But no, they go to the same spots in the tree, but you just can't pick them out. Well, no, because they, they, they use different trees different ways. A hickory. Seth, explain what they do in a hickory. Because we saw it twice last night they, when we had to find them with binoculars. They were going all the way up to the tops. Tippy, tippy, tippy top. tops. Because the leaves are so thick on a hickory. They'd climb that hickory till they're on the final twig and lay up there in the thick, thick leaves. In an oak, it wouldn't work because you'd pick them off. Hmm. Yep. That, one, that one tree we are about to give up on. Remember I said, I think he's in that hickory, and then you pulled out your glass and found him? Yep. Parker, I'd like all the way in the top. Yeah, I'd like you to speak on that a little bit. Your, uh, your trans- can coming. you speak about your transformation? <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought it was like a, a Western big game hunter elitist thing. Like, to have binoculars. I've like, got my, my binox on my special strap on my chest. <laughs> and I think in my mind, like, I'll never do that, man. Um, but <laughs> hunting yesterday, you said we well, were binoculars. I'm like, I'm not binoculars. You even wait. I'll point I out scoffed. that you mocked me for having mine. <laughs> well, you'll notice that the first day we went out, Seth and I both. Well, you didn't bring them the first day, right? Nope. You were the only one, nope. Steve, that brought them. And man, like I was like, yeah, there's gonna be too many leaves. Everything we're gonna see is gonna be up close. There's no reason for them. And man, it wasn't two squirrels into it i was kicking myself like that was <laughs> oh i was i was kicking myself at the parking lot i wanted to wear them but parker the way he was talking Locked i was like so yeah i was like well okay. I'm not, i don't want to i don't want to disappoint He's this like fella. a playground bully i yeah. know <laughs> like you get a new coat and the playground bully mocks you so bad you might leave it in your locker and go out cold yeah and suffer on the playground See, for me this is this is my favorite time to like still hunt squirrels and you see them go up a tree and then you got your binoculars the fun part for me is finding them. I feel. I really feel and like leaves. y'all are kicking me when I'm down right now. I'm about to admit. No, because you can't. <laughs> I'm, about, I'm about to admit. <laughs> I'm going to use binoculars. <laughs> Do you own some? No. Oh, can I send you some? Sure. Are you going to get the strap? I was running. Man, I don't know about the strap. You got to no. do the harness, man. You got to. Like the front strap? Yeah. Where oh, are you yeah. going to keep them? Your pocket? Man, I don't know. You're going to have to give me like a lesson on what to do. But I will know, you know, we'd come up to a tree and I'm surrounded, looking, looking, don't see it. And I'll, there's an army of dudes with binoculars. And somebody goes, <laughs> got them. I'm going, what? <laughs> you got them? Yeah. And so I was thinking about it last night. We killed nine last night, and I know I think four of those were found with binoculars. The tail. Like a squirrel doesn't realize he has a tail. Right. They don't do a good job concealing. They don't do enough to hide their tail. Or it's just a hard thing to hide. 
oftentimes I pick out the tail hairs with yes. the, the light. That's the thing behind it. The Just light coming, the fuzz. It's off. It's off. So, it yeah, because be. he can paste his body against a thing, and 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 like a gray squirrel, particularly on most tree bark, oak, hickory, whatever. Same. When he when he welds his body to to that bark, it's a hard thing to see. But the light will always filter through that tail in a in a very distinguishable fashion. Evolution never cleared that up for the squirrel. I don't know what you know. They they need it for balance. Yeah, mm. the tail is really important for balance. I mean, think about how they just run tree to tree. You know, hundred feet jumping. Up. Yeah, and, I'd yeah. like to talk to a physiologist about what all a squirrel gets out of the tail. And I imagine also there's something going on with um, signaling, perhaps. Mm-hmm. If you ever watch a squirrel pissed in a tree? Yeah, they move their tail a lot. When they're barking at you, which heavily hunted squirrels seem to not bark at you. <laughs> you go out like opening day, squirrels will bark at you in the woods. Later in the year, when all those squirrels are gone, the ones that are alive don't bark. No. But when he's barking, he's doing that. He gets in that position where he's like using his tail as like an alert thing. Mm-hmm. And I think he's cluing other squirrels in. I heard a theory about like, why does a white-tailed deer flag? Why does he put his flag up when he's running? And we'll never know. These are the kind of questions you, like, you can't test and know. But, but I, a person had a theory about it that when a white-tail runs away and he lifts that big brush up, you follow it like and it, it's almost like you got it, you know. And so you're like, why would he do that? Because it's so easy to see where it's going. But when he runs and stops and lays it down, the thing that you were paying attention to, like what you eye, what you eye adjusted to, all of a sudden vanishes, and it helps the deer perhaps mm, slip away. Helps the deer switch away. Like you see that thing, and then that thing goes away, and you're focused on that. And not that. I think what you can wind up saying about it isn't that that's why he does it, but that's definitely a thing that if you pay attention to it and watch it, that's a thing that happens that would be advantageous to the deer. But it could also be that it's that's a, a display for other deer. Other deer see that and they know that there's trouble. There's an there's an altruistic quality to it. I'd buy that. So what else happened between how we went out? Treed the same number of squirrels, roughly the same number of squirrels, but got one versus nine. Do they, do they, is it an evening morning thing? Well, um, I generally like to hunt them in the evening. Um, and I think it helps with scent. I think when that cooler air starts coming down from the, from the night, it helps with the, with scent a little bit better. The morning, and this is just all squirrel man theory. This does, I don't know if this is right or wrong. This is just what I've observed. This time of year, they don't come out of the trees. They don't really need to. They're up there and eating white oaks and whatever mass they can. And so they, if they do come down, it's for very short periods of time and then right back up. Um, in the evening, they've had their feel. Then they're going to burying and getting ready for the for the winter time. And they're down on the ground, getting a drink of water, you know, cashing nuts, digging. And I think they're on the forest floor a little bit, a little bit more in the afternoon. The morning hunts always seem to be hinky. You know, it's like that's weird. Or you got a runner, or we're covering a great distance, and we're not putting many many squirrels up. Uh, it's 
over time, it's just I'd rather hunt the evening. No matter the time of year. No matter the time of year. Right. No matter the time of year. Now, the first day we went squirrel hunting, it was 90 degrees. Um, the dog's having a hard time. Um, scent probably is not as fresh as when we went yesterday. And it was damp. It had rained the night before. There's a lot more humidity in the air. Um, it was in the evening. I think the, squir- the squirrels were down, and the dog could smell them probably a little bit better. I don't know why they held or we found them. Maybe it's because of the binoculars. A lot of knockers, man. Yeah. A lot um, of knockers. And we did have a, a couple multi-squirrel uh, trees, which helps. Yeah, we shot three out of one tree. Right. That helps. That adds no, that that adds numbers. It does help too that like Mike and Chris are they're they were staring through their cameras, you know, really working. But Seth and I uh, definitely, I mean, we doubled up basically eyes. You guys are, you know, each have an extra pair of eyes to find these squirrels. That helps a lot. Yeah, but you were there in the morning. Oh yeah, I was oh. just making a general <clears throat> general statement that. Yep. Uh, okay, one last squirrel question for you. Okay, what are your favorite ways to uh prepare the squirrels you get you're saying you eat about 200 a year your family eats about 200 a year yeah how do you guys like to do them and how did you like to do them when you were a kid and has it changed over time so when i was a kid it was squirrel and gravy over rice and squirrel and gravy over mashed potatoes or fried squirrel very little deviation um when i was a kid we we barbecued some on the grill and those sorts of things but not can you take us through a brief uh, recipe of squirrel gravy, how that's made? My mom made squirrel gravy, and I, I know this is – I'm going to uh, just talk about something else. One time I remember going deer hunting, um, and my dad got me – I don't know if it was an old-timer thing, but my dad would make me get up at like 3 or 4 in the morning, sit in the tree for like an hour before it got light, you know, like get in there before the deer. And I, I think – it was low deer numbers back then, and deer were just starting to come on, and those guys thought you had to be there way before light. And I remember getting up at like 3 in the morning, and my dad made some weak old, warmed up some weak old squirrel and gravy and put it over grits, which was a, a southern food. And I remember it had a little hair in it, and I just – it. <laughs> man, I'll never forget that. My brother and I were like – 3.30 in the morning, week old squirrel gravy With hair and, and grits. I'm like, ugh, man, what about a Pop-Tart or something? <laughs> <laughs> but we ate that. Uh, but, no, it's just uh, it's just like a, any other gravy you would, would cook. You know, How do you cook the squirrel before it gets into the gravy? So you, if you fry a squirrel or you can crock pot squirrel, either way, and just use the use the little bit of grease drippings or whatever from that and make your gravy. And then you can put it back on it oftentimes in a cast iron skillet and now go in the... So you're picking the meat or not picking the meat? At this at this point in my squirrel eating career as a kid, it was not picking the meat. It was quarters. You know, dipped out quarters on rice. With gravy. With gravy. And then or you had potatoes. to pick it up and... Then you picked it up and... Spit out the shot. Spit out the bone. And yeah. the hair. Spit out shot bone and hair all of it and you pick it now i pick it now i swore to myself i will not do this to my children not that i didn't like it but uh, i still eat it and i still it's a nice squirrel dish man like my mouth waters for it it's to me one of the best meats in the woods 
And so now uh, I do a variety of things. Um, I messed up the first time I, I, uh, I was trying to press my wife. I killed a squirrel and I gutted it and <clears throat> just had it splayed out like, uh, it, uh, like a squirrel would be on a spit. Yeah, like, like a, the whole thing. Like Don Argentino, and they mount them on those. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I did that, and I, I crucifixes. Uh, they mount them on, man. I made that for my wife, and I presented her in very professional fashion, in my opinion, as a squirrel man, a splayed, delectable squirrel. I picked a young one too. I didn't give her a great big old. Is this when you were? Is this when you were courting her? That's when I was courting her. Yeah, it was a prize. She's not a squirrel man. Nah. She a river man? Nah. No, okay. <laughs> nah. She's none of the above. <laughs> so I present her with this squirrel, and man, that went over like a turd in a punch bowl. It was not <laughs> good. And so it was just too much. It was too much. She I mean, just the look on her face was such that I it went into my mind, mm, I'm gonna have to change this up a little bit. And for years she wouldn't eat it. And just because of, not because of the flavor of the squirrel or that it was a squirrel, just the presentation went into her mind every, like you just served me a, a rat. Um, but now I changed it up and it's mostly picked. Um, and the way that I've been doing it lately, and I was telling Giannis about it, the way I'm so, I'm so proud of is I've been crockpotting it with some spices, uh, garlic, picking it. Um, and rolling it up in a croissant with either cream cheese or cheddar cheese or peppers, onions, jalapenos, which whatever little fixings I, I want. I want to clarify too, though, the crock pot, you're saying like not completely covered in liquid in the crock pot. I put no liquid in the squirrels um, that I cooked last night. You, you can't just put a squirrel in a crock pot and turn the crock pot on. That's what I was saying. Sure you can. He said what? otherwise it's boiling yeah. it. I put a little bit. I, I hit it with a little bit of um, oil in there, so and you, that's it. So there's really? a, there's enough moisture in the in squirrel. The, it'll in cook the squirrel. Down. Yeah, and it'll. So those I threw those nine squirrels in there, and there was two inches of moisture, and this morning, and I just pulled the bones right out. You got onions in there. Um, yeah, onions. You throw in onions in there, and those sorts of things. Doesn't yeah, burn. Otherwise, it's boiling it. You know, if you put liquid in there, that's a good point, man. But Wow, it's just, you know, we would fry them. My, my, my mom would do, um, she would brown, oftentimes, this is one of the ways I like it the most. Is sometimes we just put them in a deep fryer, but also my mom would brown them in oil, dust them in a seasoned flour, brown them in oil, then put them on a sheet pan mm. and put them in the oven at 300 degrees. Oh. And that makes, like, it's like we would call it, and it's different because other people use different things. We would call it chicken fried squirrel, even though, like, chicken fried steak, because that's how my mom would, if my mom went out and bought chicken chicken thighs, she would brown them in oil and finish them in the oven. So she would just do squirrels the same way. And man, sometimes it was just, like, perfect. On the bone, browned real nice, and then baked at that low heat to tenderize them a little bit. Yeah. was pretty good. Hmm. But when you say you roll it, uh, I want to get back to this croissant thing. You roll it. What do you mean roll it in a croissant? And then bake the croissant? Right. Just like you're baking Oh, croissant. do you mean you buy those little triangle croissants? Right. Exactly. Oh, and roll it I in there. Yeah. I spread the triangle, and then I put all my fixing like a taco. 
right? Everything that I want. And also, I've been putting some uh, thyme in there lately, like a sprig of thyme, which I really like. And I roll that thing up, fold it up nice, a little a pouch of squirrel meat with everything else, bake it, and then the croissant bakes into a itself and all it's that's hot, in there it's a little hot pot it's like a thinking man's hot pocket and the and the and i knew i was on to this when my kids started fighting each other over those things the last one like no give it to me and and my wife's eating them and going that's good and oh squirrel man's going oh i'm on to something here <laughs> yeah but it's hard to burn through 200 squirrels shoving them inside croissants because you're just not getting a lot of bulk in there no no we gumbo etouffee we fry them you make etouffee and gumbo? Yeah, we and, and we we you know, yeah, we make all that stuff, you know. And it's just the meat we use. As opposed to chicken, for us it's squirrel. And your wife likes to cook with game, obviously. She does. The one conversation I had with your wife when I met her, she was going home to make uh fish stew, coconut curry, fish stew, and I asked her what kind of fish, and she said catfish. Was there any other kind? No. And she and I asked her if she was going to put it in cooked or put it in raw. And she said I put it in raw and cook it in the soup broth. Yeah. And she said that you don't like it spicy. I and love she it. She said spicy. that she only keeps you around because you're cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Do you have a name for this recipe yet? No, I don't. We'll have to come up with one. Yeah. Squirrel croissant. Yeah. Squirrel sign. Squirrel sign. Squirrel sign. Squirrel pocket. You haven't had good luck. Uh, how do you freeze your squirrels? I freeze them um, with the old milk jug water. And then, most importantly, after you cut the top off the milk jug, fill it up with water, freeze it. And being scolded from a, a child by my dad, you have to then go back and make sure that there's none exposed on the top of the ice. It, man, that stuff freezer burns bad. It, right. And so you have to hit it with another layer of water. Yep. And so that's how I freeze them. But you know what I think you ought to reconsider is just for freezer management and capacity issues, squirrels vacuum, they vacuum bag beautifully. With the bones. Yeah, yeah, man. Man, you're busting me about having cheap bags. Maybe that's my thing. I got sorry bags because I can't do it. (laughs) Listen, I used to not like, back when everybody was running those, um, Right when vacuum sealers came out and it was like infomercial era and shit for like homeowner vacuum sealers, they came out with a lot of bad vacuum sealers and bad bags. I'm sure there's a variety of good ones out there, but I have one of these things. It's, it's big, but it's like the, it's like the Weston pro series 2300. It's big. I mean, you could put a Nerf football and vac the air out of a Nerf football with one of these things and make it look like a flat pancake. But I have that, and I use their bags, which is like a a heavier gauge bag. And you can put them in there, lay them out in there, suck it out, and they just, it's like nothing bad happens to them. And squirrel freezer burns bad. Yeah. Like a squirrel in a Ziploc bag is a disaster. Doesn't last long. It's a lot of surface area. Like per, it's a lot of surface area per volume. If you, when you cut them though, you know how I was getting on you about how I think your cut's too high when you cut his legs off? Yep. That's one thing that can puncture the bags is if you have jaggedy bones. But if you cut at the joint, 
so you have nice rounded bones. You can put a whole bunch of quarters in there or splay them out like you're talking about with your presentation with your wife. You can pack them in there. I've even packed them in there where they're all spooning, like the squirrels are spooned out. Yeah. Four or five wide, whole, and vac them in there. And it's like a page in a book, like a nice flat package full of squirrels, and you could stack a 1,000 of them in your freezer. Because I used to do that jug of water thing, and man, you just wind up with a freezer full of jugs. Yeah, you do. So when you're... And, look, can I finish? Yeah. Selling you on this? You put that thing in cold water, you take the vac bag out of your freezer, and pour a mixing bowl of cold tap water, and lay that vac bag in there, and that shit is ready to eat in 45 minutes. You ready, gotta get a ready blow, to cook. Ready to cook. Yeah, sorry. It's, re- it's thawed. Yeah. You got to get a blowtorch out when you want to get them out of a milk jug. The day before or that morning to thaw. But, or you burn through gallons of water by setting it under the thing and turning the water on to run over it. I'm telling you, man, it's like, just like you got to get on binoculars. And I'm not coming at you like, like, You've got, you're a better outdoorsman than me. No way. But you're wrong about knockers and you're wrong about, you're, you're, <laughs> you've adjusted on, but I, you're wrong about back bags. I really like the idea of back bags. For, I, fl- for flatheads, for anything, you need to invest in a real vac sealer and some good damn bags. And that's my problem. I got the whatever when they first came out. But I, I want to talk a little bit about the joint cut on the squirrel please are you so you're taking the time when you have 10 squirrels lined up on the back of a tailgate and you have your cutters out you're taking the time to find that little joint with your fingers and then game shearing and get it off or are you skinning and then visibly cutting there because you, you have to hit it exactly no no right. you don't no you don't you need to move your cut three sixteenths of an inch toward the toenails and i'm going to hit it every time you're going to hit it where you wind up with a nice rounded product. Picture that you went down and bought a chicken drumstick with a jaggedy ass bone sticking out the end of it. They, they, it's a nice joint, nice round joint. I get the idea. I just don't know about speed. But you know, I your cuts are nice, but you got really nice cutters. That's important. I noticed that you don't use game shears because your cutters are better than game shears. I do not use game shears. I use 10 snips. Yeah, man. That's the way to go. Yeah. Why do they even make game shears? I don't know. I don't own a pair. Your 10 snips. Yeah. My game shears, it's like they kind of crack. You got to then get in there with a knife. Your things are nice. That's a hot tip. You want to talk about hot tips? 10 snips. 10 snips. You had some Irwins. Is that what they were? I got I have several different ones. I go in the Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever, the hardware store. Hit me with the ten snips. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you that's what you want in your stock. That's right. Okay, so you need some binos in a <clears throat> in a vac sealer. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna work no, I'm gonna work on it for you. I'm gonna work on it for you, man. I'm gonna work on it for you. I owe you one, so I'm gonna work on it. Everybody cool on squirrels? Ready to move on? Ridge? Sounds yeah, unless, unless we want to talk about the uh, the byproducts that we're dealing with from our squirrel. Oh, hunt. I would like to speak on that. Mm. Uh, you're from the South South. You're from Georgia. Correct. You keep calling this the Midwest. Right. We all feel like we're in the South. If you get out of a boat and get scared by an armadillo, you're in the South. <laughs> <laughs> 
they're relatively new to this part of the country. That's what Seth was saying. Seth was saying armadillos are headed north, and they're taking the south with them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're in everything about it, including the the the. I was saying I had three hundred chigger bites, but I kind of did like a little count. I have two hundred chigger bites around my waistline and my groin, my groinal area. You had to do like a, a fisheries count where you'd count like one sector. That's what I did. And then multiply that out because yeah. you have so many. I count bait that way and I count chigger bites that way where I like look at a sample size area. <laughs> right? Like you make like a six-packy thing with your admin and count how many. Make a little Like plot. you lean over and clench. Count how many bites are on one, <laughs> one of the beer cans on a six-pack and then, and then go like, okay, there's 12 there. And then start moving around your crotch and groin and scrow area and, and add them all up. And I feel like I have two hundo. Yanni's probably got a good 150. Chiggers. So I don't think I, – I, I don't really – I could speak on this, but I don't really want to because listening to you guys Wine. talk about this has just been – a great experience for me. <laughs> <laughs> like just our bafflement. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, on the Google and researching, and man, I've learned a lot about chiggers <laughs> that I didn't know, like some of the wives' tales that I heard that aren't aren't true. And uh, yeah, you guys are researching, going, God, what are these things all over me? It's been interesting. I mean, I, I don't know that I've seen worse cases of chiggers. Well, I think we made some real rookie mistakes, man. Like not, I was just, it was a hot day. So I had just a loose t-shirt, no tuck in, no bug spray around my midriff and wading around in that tall grass. Right? Yeah. It was like when I first moved to an area that had a lot of deer ticks and a lot of Lyme disease. I didn't do any of the things that everybody that lives there is like, they know what to do. Hmm. Tuck your pants into your socks, use DEET. I didn't do any of that junk. I didn't do tick checks. Right. And I paid the price. Right. So here it just had to be that my one, if I had, had gotten a dozen bites, I'd be like, huh, you know, next time. But just to get so overwhelmed by them. And I've been in areas that obviously have them before, but I've never, I've really never experienced just a real hard hit from chiggers. <laughs> I, I'll fess up. I'll fess up to the listeners. I couldn't sleep and I couldn't concentrate and I had to go down and I went down to a med stop and got around to steroids. Is that bad? It's bad. You got you guys got it bad, and it's it's luck of the draw too because you just like walked through them, man. But I did spray, and I remember offering you guys. Some I know, spray. but we I all, I went around and hit everybody's ankles. I just um, put a little squirt in my ankles. I we were thinking about seed ticks. We weren't thinking chiggers. Man, I use it like breath freshener. You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all over. Yeah, so yeah. off does uh, prevent chiggers. Yeah. Says so on the can. Oh. Because what we're like, what we deal with a lot with in the northern air, in northern states in the summer is no seams, gnats, white socks. For that stuff, I just carry a little teeny bottle of 100% DEET or 50% DEET. And you get like behind your ears and a couple places they like to hit. But it's not like, like I was, when I went out last night, I had so much of that junk on me, my clothes were wet. Yeah, good. I hosed <laughs> down. You didn't pick up any more chiggers. Oh, man. Good on squirrels? Itchy. Yeah, what's interesting is that uh, Mike, Seth, 
Park. Well, Parker sprayed down properly. We didn't spray down the first morning. Yeah, I went around and hit your ankles. I didn't, you didn't even notice. <laughs> but it might be that they don't, but you know how like some people are more susceptible to mosquitoes and stuff? It yeah. might be that I'm just like, there's something about. I was thinking about it because like I was, I was on like behind Giannis the whole time. I was wearing that pack with a hip belt. I didn't have my shirt tucked in, but I had that hip belt mm-hmm. tight around my waistline. Yep. The whole time. Which might have helped. It's an it's a micro not it's not microscopic, but you're not gonna notice it readily. They're very, very small. Yeah. And it's an it's an alar- it's a larval stage of some arachnid. And uh they they hang out in clusters and you pass through a cluster and get them on there. And they latch on, they'll latch on for four hours. They have an enzyme. <clears throat> they secrete an enzyme onto you, which liquefies your skin cells, and they lap that stuff up. And that the residue from that little activity causes intense itching and inflammation. Huh. Sons of bitches, man. Little devil. But you started itching the night of. I was feeling it. When we were rigging flathead tackle, I kept being like looking, lifting my shirt up. It probably causing more trouble for myself. Lifting my shirt up, trying to be like, why do I feel like something's on me? At first, everyone thought it was poison ivy because we had hit that that field that was just a sea of poison ivy. (laughs) And Mike threw his headphones down in it. Mm. And that's when you told me. Yeah, Yeah. you walked by and said, I would watch your headphones. You're laying in poison (laughs) ivy. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm waiting for that. It'd be here by now. Yeah, I think so. It'd be here by now. If we, I, I think it's I think it's dying down and it's not oily right now. But it took yeah. two days for the jiggers for you. Yeah. But if you look online, different people, it could take. It can be hours, or a day or two days later for the jigger bites to emerge. Poison ivy has a really nasty like. It's that's what's so kind of uh, that's what's so kind of um, nasty about poison ivy is that that delay. Where you like you, you just have like this don't know you get hit by a horsefly fuck you know it poison ivy gets you man it's like secrety how long like if you go walking through poison ivy and it's on your boots and like the cuff of your pants how long is the oil like if you're like untie your boots that day and then the next morning put your boots back on and tie like should you be washing your hands again oh, the next yeah. day yeah next that's day? that's when you get like but there's different kinds of poison ivy infections when you get like. You get back from somewhere, and all of a sudden you get some poison ivy bubble stripes on your knuckles and stuff. I think you're dealing with that kind of junk. Mm. But I don't think, like, the direct exposure of when you're getting, like, plant-to-skin Plant-to-skin leaves these marks where you can just almost see the, 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 the impact of it. But I do think that you do get it on your boots then later. And if you get into it real bad and you're real susceptible, you're supposed to take rubbing alcohol and wipe down your wipe down your stuff, wash your clothes in hot water. But I've had a lot of that where, like, you get it around your knuckles and inside your arm, then, like, a week later, you get a couple more spots. Mm. And I think that you're getting some residual oil transfer, but it's nothing like... Like, senior skip day, when I was in high school, it's a tradition in my high school to to everyone skip school on senior skip day, and you'd go uh, canoe the White River. Um, I was telling this story the other day. Uh... Senior skip day, I shimmied up a tree because you climb trees and also jump into the river. I shimmied up a tree that had poison ivy vines on it, and I wound up going to uh, 
I wound up having to go to the doctor about that. That was bad. That and burning it. Burning it in a brush pile can make you really sick. Because you're inhaling it? Oh. That hurts. We good on squirrels? We're good. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA... Gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like You still slide stuff right across the deck it doesn't catch on the d-rings the d-rings are built in the drawer system fits any trucker van on the road in the usa from the last 20 plus years deck is a game changer there's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you the stuff i want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping get incredible deals on premium cuts from butcher box do you like free protein for a whole year well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash eater. Make sure you use code MEATEATER to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. <clears throat> Flatheads. Uh, explain poke pulling, which you call bank pulling. 
<clears throat> it's just like limb lining, if you know what limb lining is. Where you hell explain find, limb lining? We find a limb overhanging a likely place where a catfish would be that's somewhat limber enough to hang a line off of, and that hangs in the water with a bait on it. The catfish grabs it. And then that limb acts like a fishing rod with some, um, you know, some resistance. When it pulls down, it pulls back against the fish and, and holds it on on the hook. Um, bank poling is similar to that in as much as you use a ten or twelve foot fiberglass rod poked or stuck into the bank of the side of the river with your line then on it. And that big fiberglass rod acts like uh, a fishing rod or gives that resistance. The difference between the two is the fiberglass rods you can put where you want to, where a likely place a fish would be. Unlike limb lining, you're just, you're kind of at the mercy of where a limb would be. Um, And so these, we try to pick the best likely spots, stick them in with a bait, um, a live bait when you're targeting flatheads. And man, go from there. Talk about the bait a little bit first. The bait's the issue. <laughs> <laughs> the bait's always the issue. So we ran oh eighty or so hooks, and to go for flathead catfish like we were going, big baits are better. Um, and so you need eighty big baits, and a big bait, a big nice bait, would be like a hand size bluegill or a carp minnow, or something, you know, four to six to eight or 10, even 12 inches long. You need 80 of those to be successful. To be successful. And you're, you're allowed to run 33 hooks per person. Per person, yeah. 33 hooks. So we were running, three of us were running 80 or so. We weren't quite there, but, you know, you get bait, and after you have a... Uh, 150 baits you think man you have bait for days but you don't and you got to come back and go for bait and i'm indiscriminate bait collector and will collect bait in any way shape or form that i can and we we ran into that problem we ran out of bait and you cast net for bait i cast net for bait and the uh, i you can man you can get it any way you can you could sane it you could catch it on a hook and bobber uh however you can get it and you guys you use hoop, like hoop traps for bait too, right? Hoop nets, you know. Yeah, little little ones in the creek or something like that, you know. Going for carp. Shad. We, didn't have, we haven't had any luck with the little hoops, though, actually. Would you ever that. set them in the, in the current channels and they don't keep swim up in there? No. But you try it that way. Yeah, little fish traps. We've just had very little luck. Not what's the, what's the diameter on your hoop traps? The one... We only have one that we tried, and it's a, I bet it's a 18-incher. Yeah. My brother has hoop traps. He lives in an area where he's allowed to hoop net yeah. for rough fish. And they used to bait their hoop nets, but then he thinks that the bait doesn't matter. He just puts them in lines of travel. Like if you got like a, let's say you got like a little gravel, let's say you got a stream that's got the shallow end, then you got like a little gravel trough up against the, up with a deep cut bank and a little gravel trough down there. He'll lay that hoop trap, obviously opening up toward the downstream side, and he pulls up some hauls of suckers in that thing. Yeah, I don't have it figured Just out. Just catching them on their path, but he's got. But these are huge, right? No, these are the one, one I have a little bit. These are like thirty inch hoops, I think. Yeah, it's mostly cast netting. Yep. Yep. 
So you go out and cast that a bunch of bait. You can't use a largemouth as bait. Cannot use game fish as bait. No. But you like shad, carp. I like shad, but they're tough to keep alive. Um, if we can keep them aerated, I like those. They're they're a good size, a big shad, hand-sized shad. Um, carp, which are super tough. Bluegill, which I think personally everything in the river likes a bluegill. I think it's like flathead candy, but they're not as tough as the as like a carp minna would mm-hmm. be. And now explain a likely place for flatheads. This is... You know, this is a, a great debate, but uh, generally behind um, a blowdown or some sort of cover in the river, you know, um, a blowdown, uh, a wing wall or dike, rocks, those places where fast water goes to slow water, like an big eddy. Log an eddy. Yeah, big, an ambush um, spot. You know, it would be like in a, any other stream or creek where the fish would be, you would think in those eddies and pools, um, the flatheads would frequent frequent those areas. That's what's and that's what's good about the bank pole because there's not a whole lot of limbs that hang over like the Missouri River where we were. I mean, it's like trees falling down, but there's no big limbs that hang over those places. That would be, I mean, a few, but not enough to be able to do what you want to do. Particularly when we're going for, we, we like to catch big flatheads, and that's kind of our it's kind of our little thing, you know, catching giants. Yeah, big ones. At what point in your mind is a flathead big? 30 pounds or, or above. That's a nice flathead. 30 plus pounds. Now, I like all of them. I mean, I think the best eating fish in the, in the river is probably a three-pound flathead. But I just like those big ones, man. Oh, it's impressive. They are. I mean, we caught some doozies. Yeah, we caught some nice ones. So you go up and down the river, and you got all your – I imagine the old days, like when I was introduced to – bank polling and it was described to me as poke polling on the ohio river these guys were using hand cut limbs basically go out like with a machete and cut like what i would think of as muskrat trap and stakes like big long stakes and run those into the bank and i'm sure that that's probably what people used to use i'm sure but the fiberglass rods are pretty damn nice yeah because you could fit just like laid up along the gunnel in the boat you know, you got 30, 40 of them in a very nice little package. What's the diameter on that? Uh, we have five eighths and 11 sixteenths too. Now we do have um, half inch poles, but we've discarded the half inch poles. And the reason we have is we never caught anything over like 25 pounds on a half inch pole. Oh. And I don't know the reason other than we think that the fish can't hook itself or I, I, I don't it's know. It's not rigid reason. enough. It's just not rigid enough. It's it's like the 25-pound cutoff. And then Ridge Pounder threw your last half-incher into the river. That's the benefit of cutting your poles. Those will float. Yes. Fiberglass does not That's a good float. point. And Ridge Pounder didn't even, <laughs> even yell Mark Twain or anything. No. <laughs> I don't know what happened, man. <laughs> Let's just get to it. I asked, we were making a set. We were making a set, and I just asked Ridge. I kindly asked Ridge, hey, can you take that pole and see how deep it is here? Easy task, I thought. And he just, just kind of lowered the pole <laughs> into the water and then just let it drop. Dude, it just literally <laughs> came out of my hand. I was like, oh, I got this. And then it just, dis- I just watched it like disappear. <laughs> it was like, the weirdest, it was one of the stranger things I've seen. <laughs> Neither of them said anything either. They just, it was just he you. just sort of was like releasing it. 
that just happened? <laughs> a 10-foot fiberglass pole. That wasn't a good morning for me either because then I threw a bait overboard. That was right before the... the it was right after he discarded yeah. a bait. Yeah. Um. So you have it rigged where it's a 10-foot pole and you run 10 foot of, of twine. Not twine. It's not cotton. Nylon. Braided nylon. In the, in, the, in the Pacific Northwest, they call it Ganyan. Ganyan line. Ganyan. I have to remember that. Yep. You know, it'd be a, it's Ganyan. Like your that material used in that for that purpose would be Ganyan. So you have roughly it's a ten foot pole, and you have ten feet of eight feet of leader, right? Or not eight feet of leader, eight feet of main line. Yeah, main line. And then you put a plumb sinker on it. Was like a one ounce plumb, one ounce lead, right? Or whatever else we can find on the riverbank. Yep. Yeah. One ounce of lead. Then you put a. Then you tie it to a barrel swivel. Big barrel swivel. Then off that barrel swivel, you got another two feet of leader. Right. And then you use a big ass halibut hook, big right. circle hook, big circle hook. And on that circle hook, you like to tail hook or lip hook, depending on the velocity of current. Correct. Speak to that. There are tail men, and there are head men okay i'm a head man as a general rule and because this is the reason when you're fishing current it's coming down i like to hook them in the nose or in somewhere in the in the lips so the current is the fish is oriented facing the current and it's like it would be a natural swimming type of motion for them if you hook them in the tail they're facing backwards in that swift current. And, I mean, in actuality, they drown. Yeah. Um, the, the water is going backwards over their gills, and they don't stay alive. Um, and they die in a very unnatural shape. At a 90. Like, they're all at a 90. You're right. Yeah, they look like shit. Yeah, they look terrible. And their scales are all fluffed out. Yeah. But if in a uh, – the argument for tails has got to be the longevity in no current that he's going to have more action and, and, and have action for longer. I think they stay on the hook better. Oh. A tail hooker. With the tail hook. Oh, because yeah. Because you're deep in the meat, and it stays on. So in, a, in a, an eddy or slow water, I like to hook them in the tail if, I, if there's no current. Because the smaller fish can't pick, pick it off or, you know, those sorts of things. They do stay on the hook better. Yeah, I'll point out that um, bait loss is a big problem. <laughs> Giant. So uh, I want to walk through a couple other points. I explained the rig. You get a whole boatload of these rigs. You go down, launch your boat, and you just start punching in poles all over. It's and you're not... not and, and it's you're, not you're, that easy just to punch in a bunch of poles. No, it's hard to punch in poles. And they make a little thing where you wear a, a, a rubber palmed a tight fitting rubber palmed glove so you can get a good grip on the fiberglass stake and you guys make a little which which i don't know why you didn't turn me on to these or let me know about these i had like kind of discovered on my own yeah after a lot of poles no keith runs those that they have a little block of wood parker's buddy has a little block of wood that he took a half or five eighths drill bit like a five eighths auger bit drill and made a little circular cut bored a little circle into the block of wood that fits the end of the fiberglass pole. 
you stick this block of wood under your tight-fitting rubber-palmed glove so that it's like one of that joke where, you know, those little things, you see those buzzers you put in your hand to shock <laughs> people when you shake their hand. It fits in your hand like that. You Because what I was doing to sink the poles prior to my discovery of the wood block was I would get it started and then put the end of the pole right up against my heart because I had a PFD on, a personal flotation device on with good padding. And I would put it against the padding of my life jacket and use the force of my body to drive it in. And this is all about the boat's swirling around the current and the motor's running and it's tricky and you need to drive it in enough to hold a 60 pound flathead which it's shocking that it works it's it is shocking but then i discovered that block of wood <laughs> and you put that block of wood fit the hole over the end of the thing and then you can just drive that son of a bitch in and it's so satisfying man you're just like yeah in got him 45 degree angle and you're not driving it into the dry bank so much oftentimes you're driving it into two three feet of water right where it's hanging out at a 45 degree angle over deeper water right and you'd like to put all your poles in because we're going to touch on bait loss you don't like to bait until dusk right so you go through and make all your sets get all your poles in ready to go then hang out factory and how much time it's going to take to where you're getting done just at the moment you need to start using your headlamp and then go back through and bait all your hooks because big mambo jumbo flatheads come out at dusk or at night and you don't want all the turtles gar and gar destroying all your bait right you want to have the bait hit the water at the magic moment right but still you come back in the morning it's gone 90 Easily 90% of that bait's gone in the morning. Easily. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. I'd like to know what gets the largest percentage of them. I don't know. I don't know if you're missing fish. I don't know if it's turtles, gars, combination of everything. Don't know. I feel as though you have to lose a lot to turtles, and you have to lose a lot to gars. The reason I say the gar thing is I've seen it happen limb lining where with the bright sun this is baiting in the bright sun we can see what's going on in the water hang that bait down and all of a sudden there's three or four guards nosed up against it that fast they just know right they're down there anyway that's why we don't do it a whole lot in the middle of summer when the guards were and these were short active. these were short nosed guards yeah but just like pecking at it you know so that's an issue but it's amazing to me how many baits uh especially those carp minnows and then the bluegills that would survive the whole night. And then Hard we, workers. We'd be there at 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, and you could fish that bait another day, just fresh. And, and then I'm, uh, it's the big debate. Oh, does, does this spot suck? You know, you know, it's like, well, it's a great, big, good bait, and it hasn't been touched in 24 hours. Should I move it or just let them run, you know? Yeah. Parker was saying he likes to let those baits go and reward those baits. I do. Just like a hard-working bait. Like, man, you got caught. You were put in the bait bucket. We drove a big hook through your mouth. You're on there for two days. We're pulling our poles. I take that hook out as gingerly as I can. <laughs> and it's like a, a brook trout fisherman. I let him just slide into the water and go free. Takes a little picture of it. Yeah. Keep him wet. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag keep him yeah. wet. Thank you, sir. You did a great job. You did not get eaten by a flathead. 
When you go out and check them, you like to start checking right at daybreak. Yeah. What, what, what's the thinking on that? The thinking on that is it's very visible to see, you know, those big poles bouncing, guys running the river. And, it, and it, it's titillating to passersby. It is. People running it's the river. Seductive. Yeah, be a big pole bouncing, looking around <laughs> going, hey, uh, <laughs> there's a big old flathead over there that I could get. So you kind of want to get out before all the people start running the river. And also, you know, the longer anything's on a set line like that, the more chance it has to escape or get off or work a big hole. So try to get there early as we can. And you go down the river and you can tell, you know, a big flathead, the way he works a pole. You can tell. It's as exciting as, it's as exciting as like, I like in my mind. I keep going to muskrat trapping on the whole thing. Yeah, it's just exciting to go out and check. It is. It's like Christmas. Go out and check the line, and talk about the way a big flathead is on that pole. So if you visualize the pole sticking out at a forty-five degree angle, and a fish on the line of it, a smaller fish, it will be more of a bouncing, bobbing type of action. You know there's a fish on it, but you don't really know how big it is. But a big flathead, just with the weight, that pole just goes down slow or it'll be bent or stay, you know, kind of at a 20-degree angle or then slowly go under the water and disappear um, and then ease back up. You know it's just sheer poundage that's doing that. That 50-pounder. Sucked that pole, slowly sucked that pole underwater and held it underwater long enough that we thought he pulled the pole. We thought it was gone. Or I was worried that it pulled the pole. I was too. I was thinking he pulled it. We spooked him and he pulled it. But it eased back up. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's so fun, man. Um, And sometimes they're on there and they don't buck. No. And you kept saying that I didn't believe it, but we eventually saw it. Yeah. As you can't approach every pole if it's not moving, particularly those bigger fish. They'll just lay on the bottom. And what, what you don't want to do is have the pole come up to the pole and a fish take off and that pole go down and hit the gunnel or side of the boat because on those large fish, they that, snap it. that stop will break or they'll ring off. you got to let them have that action. So Same way you wouldn't grab the tip of someone's rod when he's fighting a fish. Exactly. Exactly the same premise. So you come up and uh, with a pole, particularly one that Ridge Pounder threw in the bottom of the drink, you use that to fill the line before you get there. And if there's resistance to it, you know there's a fish on it, even if the pole's not moving. And I was telling you that. You, you kind of get lackadaisical because you're running poles, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then you pull up to one that's not moving. Bam! You know, you got a 35-pound blue cat on the end of it. Yeah. That's a good transition. There's the trifecta. There's the catfish trifecta, which we pulled every day. Yep, we we checked for two days and pulled trifectas on two days. Though I lost one. Oh yeah, I think it was yeah. an incomplete trifecta the first day because I I tried to horse him up into the boat and didn't use a landing net and he came unbuttoned. And I was actually glad that that one got away because that was our first pole and that's the ominous sign. Although we didn't do well. If you catch one on your first pole, man, because it's like that's bad juju. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you go. Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna cross. Unless, it. For, unless if it was a fifty pounder on your first pole. Hey, yeah, then you're good. But if to catch a can, little channel on your first pole is not good luck. No, 
the thing about catching a 50 pound flathead is like the trip's made yeah. even if it's on your first pole there's no way you things can go bad no because you know, you're just you're peacocking around like just your fan is fully exposed <laughs> up and down the river <laughs> yeah you're hoping to run into some passersby that's right see what i got yeah, you were saying this is one of the inter- more interesting things you told me about this is that you go through, like, your family eats hmm. five deer in a year. Right. And you were saying uh, that you don't even really care for deer hunting. And if someone came and just dropped off five gutted out deer in your driveway, you'd be just as fine with that. Man, would I. I would. And when you moved up here, the flathead fishing was so good that you drop down to three deer a year and are eating two deer worth of flatheads two deer worth of flatheads it's a good trade it's a good trade so that's probably roughly 100 pounds flathead probably two deer processed meat right 100 pounds of flathead fillets yep how many times a year do you need to go up and do how many times a year do you go on limb line or uh, bank pole i do it two like you do two sessions two a year? Two sessions a year, and it depends on the amount of biomass that I accumulate. I look in my freezer, and I go, I have enough. Or, and it's good that it's two times a year because it's spring, and then if you look in the fall and you open and you go, man, I'm low on flathead, then you hit it hard in the fall. Mm-hmm. Or I still have some from the spring, so I don't need to hit it too hard. Yeah, and you when you get all set up, it's a lot of work to get set up. Do you usually do two or three checks or one? Yeah, check? I, I I generally run them two or three nights, for sure. And and uh, we watch the river levels, and generally you get them better on a rise uh, of the river. So uh, we watch the river levels. If it's on a steep drop, we won't go. And when the conditions are right, and we feel like we're going to have good good luck, then we'll go. Um, back to the catfish trifecta mm-hmm. channels blues and flats can you speak to the the edibility and mystique and rank them out in a hierarchy i can give my opinion no that's all that's yeah. all i'm asking for okay because this will be met with resistance i know among each every catfish man man has different thoughts so for me i like flatheads but that, that's universal, though, I feel like. People that have access to flatheads like flatheads. Yeah, they're not, they do scavenge, but not as, as much as the other two species. They, they prefer live. They're predators, live man. Yeah, yeah, they're predators. They're not scavengers. Yeah. Hence the giant mouth, you know? So um, they don't have as much fat on them. Uh, the meat to me is better tasting. It's. It's a little firmer. It's not a like, real flaky meat. Um, yeah, and catfish fat, we should point out, tastes like shit. Yes, it does. And it's not so much, when you when you go to cleaning a catfish, it's not so much the red meat that you're seeing. Now, I, I trim that, but it's the, it's the light-colored fat. It's like a gelatinous. Like you skin, if you take a, when you were skinning those blue cats with a pair of skinning pliers, and you pull the hide on a blue cat, a big one, Underneath it is just a full-on gelatinous fat that when you touch it, your hands are too greasy to hold your knife. Right. That stuff tastes like hell. It's bad. So, and now, don't get me wrong, blue cats are really good to eat, but you have to trim that off. If you leave it on, it's, 
it can be. That's why I think a lot of people don't trim that and they eat it and go, God, this is horrible. Muddy. This is muddy. This tastes bad. And it's just, it's not the, it's not the meat, it's the fat. Oh, and we talked about this the other day, and I think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but we bought that catfish. For, for that shoot, for, for that film? For, yeah, a little film shoot we had going on to do a recipe with catfish. And we just assumed that it's in the store, it's going to be trimmed out properly. And it was disgusting. It was, yeah, farm-raised catfish. They hadn't defatted it, and I just assumed they did, and we just cut it up and threw it in the fryer to take a picture of a cat fried catfish fillet. But we eat all that stuff, you know? Like, Oh, yeah, but it tastes like shoots. dog shit, though. It was bad. So you could see how the the world over, you know, at least in first-world country where they're buying meat in a store, you get turned off on catfish if that's what they're selling. In the Midwest, I know you think that we're in it now, but the the... the the real, let's say the in the up in the upper Great Lakes, um, because they have yellow perch, walleye, smallmouth. People don't target catfish, and catfish has a reputation as just being a muddy tasting fish. And I grew up thinking that, and used to, th- and we would catch them and fry them, and it's just not widely known. It is down here for sure among people who target them, it's not widely known that you need to, that you need to trim your fillets because people up there are used to eating fillets that need no trimming. Right. So the, the so there you are. You're, you're ranking them out. The other argument is, and I, and I think one that's more highly debatable, I think, like you said, flatheads are, are top, top shelf in the catfish shelving world the blues and the channels are where a great debate happens um i prefer channels a little bit more than than blue cats um because of the fat contact and and i i do i want to point out that we caught a maybe a seven or eight pound channel you said that's a channel i was going man i think that's a blue cat um because they're they're similar and you were right um we asked one of our fisheries buddies, and it's the it's the shape of the was it the, the, the anal ray the anal ray, and a channel. That's the best. That's the best tip I've ever heard because they both have a fork tail, right? Like some people call channels forks because they have a fork tail, and the blue has a fork tail. But the anal ray, that's a good tip. That's a hot tip that he had. That's a good one. And and so the anal ray on a channel catfish. So if you go to the fin that sits. On the bottom side, the bottom side that fits between the between the vent and the tail, and the caudal fin or tail, there's an anal ray, and it's. You go ahead. Yeah. Um. On a channel, it's it's curved like like the bottom of a channel would be, and that's that's the way he remembers it in his mind. So it's it's like a like a D shape or a curved canoe shape. Yeah. It just, yeah. It describes like an arc. Right. Yeah. An arc. On the blue cat, that fin is flat, like a straight line. Yeah, there's like a radius, a long straight line, and another radius that comes back up into the fish. I'm not going to forget that. No, I learned I'll never that. forget that. Yeah. And I've struggled with it a lot, and I've had pe- people send me pictures being like, hey, it's a blue cat. And I'm like, man, I feel like it's a channel cat. And you go, no, I think it's a blue cat. Right. 
but it's just a final done deal. Done. Because there's a little bit of color variation. But them damn the blue cats are gorgeous. Yeah, they're blue, man. And that they look like a it looks like a it looks like a they got skin like a Mako shark, man. That kind of color, you know. And then uh channels have that like a yellowish grayish. And then the flats in the Great Lakes, the flats are a deeper, almost chocolatey brown. But here they, they some people even call them yellows, right? Yellow cats, right, yeah. And you get some color variation for sure in those, even here. Yeah, there'd be some dark brown. That 50-pounder had like a ghostly yellow to it. Yeah, those big ones are like that. You see that big old yellow head come up on a bank pole. It's exciting, man. He doesn't see the sun much. <laughs> it's one of the biggest freshwater fish you're going to monkey with. Yeah, other than sturgeon, I think so. Yeah, but widely yeah. available, well-managed, right? Right. sustainable yield type thing. I mean, sturgeon are big, but they're hurt. Right. All over their hurt. Sure. Like no one's, I like, should say no one. You know, <laughs> there's places, right? There's places where you can do some freezer filling on sturgeon in a tightly regulated fashion. But like flatheads are like, you know, and as they as they phase out some of the commercial fisheries, because they're still, this is the kind of a little known thing that, you know, there's very few freshwater commercial fisheries in the U.S., particularly for native fish. Like when you rule out, there, there's some commercial fisheries for non-natives, but when you rule out the non-native commercial fisheries, there's very few freshwater native species commercial fishing that goes on in this country. You know, then you got like a, a salmon in Alaska and the people debate like our salmon saltwater freshwater. My brother's a fisheries biologist. He points out that they begin their life and end their life in fresh water. There are, they spend a lot of time out in salt water, but there are some that never even touch salt water. And he says, he's like, it's arguable that a salmon is a, it's a freshwater species. So there's a commercial fishery for those up there, right? But here's very little. And I think there's, you know, it, it, there, there's not like an increased, there's not an increasing commercial exploitation of, catfish it's a decrease in commercial exploitation of catfish absolutely catfish are being uh you know uh, even the even with aquaculture or growing catfish the catfish farmers have really been hurting you know past few years because that's the species is just not looked at as that great of a food fish as it what has has been in the past and i don't know I don't know why. You know, some of these other things are becoming more more popular to other species and easy to grow and, you know, tilapia kind of overtaking catfish. And, man, you couldn't get me to eat a tilapia for anything. Those, yeah, They yeah. market under different names, too. Nile, well, Nile perch is because they're, you know, yeah. that's one of their native ranges. Right. You don't like tilapia? Or you I mean, just don't I, like I, the idea of it? I don't like the idea of it. Uh, I, I don't, you know, the... I think I, I heard um, in Florida in the Everglades, like half the biomass of fish, tilapia, mm. you know, invasive. And and they're a kind of, I mean, I don't know the, I mean, they're like a carp. They're a, a, a vegetate, vegetative eating, I don't know, man. They grow them in cesspools on like a catfish. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I was in the Philippines and they, um, have rice terraces. These are like communities where you can't, not even road accessible. You have to like hike into these areas in the Philippines. And there's people that have that thousand year old rice terraces. 
and they do a rice harvest. So they'll grow a crop of rice, harvest it, and then as a way of fertilizing and regenerating the capabilities of the soil, they'll put in a harvest of tilapia and let the tilapia live in there and the fish defecate, right? And then you harvest the tilapia and then replant rice. In that system, tilapia seemed cool to me because it seemed like this very like harmonious kind of system that they developed. And in that way, like eating tilapia was cool. So I thought it was just like a cool way they had to go about it. In that in that particular situation, I looked at sloppy as being like a badass fish. But I'll you know, them as a non native, it becomes not as appealing. Them as a non native in the US, they somehow lose a little bit of that. A friend of mine calls them the soy green of what was that movie? Charlie Soylent Green. Soylent Green. Mm-hmm. We're eating people. <laughs> yeah. It's people. Yeah, he calls it the soylent green of the fish world. But, you know, a rainbow trout is equally as synthetic. <laughs> yeah. It's a man-made fish. Farm-raised or? Just in general, if you look at, like, what we've done with the rainbow trout. Mm. Propagated all around the world, moved in barrels everywhere, the stocking, right? So it's, it's like, a, you know, outside of the Pacific Rim, um, it's a man-made fish. Because rainbows aren't native to, like, Midwest or no, no. any of that. Brown stuff. trout. In this country, it's a man-made fish. Brown trout, too. Yeah, they're Eurasian. Man. It's an invasive exotic. Brooks are native. Brook trout are native in the east. Cutthroat, native in the west. Native in the west. That's, yeah. Yeah, when you're on some pristine river casting dries at a brown, oh. it's, a, it's a barrel fish, dude. Came over in a barrel. Give me the muddy river and a big flat, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a river man, though. <laughs> So you like channel? Explain the other side, the flip side of this, because you like a channel better than a blue. Explain, uh, but you're saying it's contentious. It is contentious. Uh, uh, the good thing about a blue catfish is they get great big, and so there's a sheer amount of meat argument that you could use for fish and blues. Uh, the channels don't get near as big, um, so there's that aspect of it. But man, I don't know. Some of some of the guys just really prefer one over the other, and. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a channel man if, if, if given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Now, I like channels because out in my neck of the woods, that's the one we have greatest access to. Mm-hmm. So the lower Yellowstone River, like we fish channels. And there's, that's what you find there. I've heard rumors. They're unsubstantiated. Yeah, I don't know. I've heard rumors about how far up that system blues make it, and sometimes they push the that they've been found way above their known westward terminus. I don't know. But we go after channels. But after this, hanging out, doing this, I'm definitely like, I, I agree with you. There's a mystique to those flatheads. Like, I'm with you. That if I lived in a place that had flatheads, I would be a, I would be a flathead guy. Um I like to fish yellow. I would probably abandon a lot of my activities in favor of fishing flatheads. They're cool. They're super cool. And I know that they're so cool, in fact, that a lot of people now are sort of trouting them, trout-izing them, where it's becoming taboo. Like some people want to take like the bat, the largemouth bass aesthetic and apply it to flats. Hmm. 
where they become like this untouchable. You're not supposed to eat them. Hey, man, I'm good with that. As long as people could keep putting flatheads back in the river, that's fine with me. It's more for me to catch. Yeah. You had a good point. Can you explain your point on, uh, or I could do it for you, on what your thoughts on uh, heavy metal contamination? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 th- I like to think in my mind, is every time somebody asks me, well, what about the heavy metals? And it goes in through my head. Like the flesh contamination. Like the, the flesh contamination contam- of flesh from industrial pollutants. Aren't you worried about mercury or whatever? And I think in my mind, man, if I can fish, catch, clean, cook, fry up, and eat so many flathead catfish that I get sick. And die. And die. <laughs> I will have one at life, man. <laughs> like, look at Parker. He's he's 90, but uh, the mercury finally got him. Right? He, he's gray. Right? Yeah, that dude caught a bunch of flats. Yeah, he, may have some, <laughs> he must have some good spots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the same argument when, when you go with DEET. Like, uh, is that DEET good for you? It's like, I, I don't know, man. Maybe you catch cancer in like 60 years, but do you want Lyme disease or acute you know, spinal swelling from some other... <laughs> disease or chiggers spray it on man yeah i'm with you i use deet yeah and i like i was explaining to you i saw deet warp the back of my phone case off and destroy my phone but i still put it on my body now and then because i've also had lyme disease yeah and i've also had chigger infestations so we good on cats anybody got anything any final thoughts on cats caught some biggins they're a cool fish just a giant they look like dinosaurs tenacious yeah yeah we were looking at after parker uh finished cleaning the big one we like me and seth were like looking at it hanging on the tree and there was like you can look up through its gill plate into its mouth it's just like such a simple thing because like you could just look up and you're like oh and then that's the inside of it and yeah. it's like you mean when you're looking into that gaping maw yeah and it's just so yeah man i like that they don't um no like teeth i yeah. mean they have like sandpaper yeah a really their mouth their bottom and top lip are coated with a really grippy sandpaper and then they have these crushers Mm. And the back of their throat that are coated with sandpaper. Like when he gets a hold of something, that something's not going anywhere. Mm-mm. But he doesn't have, it's nice, it's a nice fish when you can just reach in there, a 50 pounder, and reach in there and just grab his lip and not rib in your hand. That's nice. Because this is satisfying to pick up those cats by that bottom lip, man. A thing I don't like about them is how long, how long they live in the bottom of the boat. My sister-in-law, when we fished with our sister-in-law, Juanita, she makes us promptly kill every fish. And it's time-consuming when you're into them real good. She will not be in a boat with a live fish in that boat. This is getting me in trouble right now, just so you know. My wife's the same exact way. Yeah. She'll sometimes not even, she'll stop fishing <laughs> just to be the person who dispatches all the fish. Kill the fish. Because me and my brother, ah, we'll get them later. But she treats it like, Yeah that you need to promptly dispatch the fish. She would not like bank pulling. She'd have to bring a shotgun. It's not easy to dispatch a 50-pound fish in the boat. 
No, you'd have to use a gun. You had to bring a snake charmer out with you and hang him over the side of the boat and hit him with a snake charmer like like castaways drawing lots, man. You ever read that book in the heart of the sea? Oh no, I don't think so. Goodness. Um anything else? No one. I I have one thing that I thought about on the way over here. Please. I, I, I want to go back to what happened at the end of the squirrel hunt. Oh, we're back to squirrel hunt. Yesterday. And I was thinking the reason... Me missing that rabbit? The reason people don't use slings that are <laughs> jump shooting rabbits or quail or jump shooting it just in general is because of what happened yesterday, I think. Because yeah. that's a real, that was an issue. I use my sling on my shotgun turkey hunting, and I use my sling on my shotgun squirrel hunting, where you're doing a lot of walking around. And with squirrel hunting, because I need to use my binoculars, I need to be able to put my shotgun on my shoulder or whatever to look for my binoculars. <laughs> Same, I use binoculars turkey hunting. I use binoculars all the time turkey hunting. So if I was out quail hunting or cottontail hunting, I wouldn't have the sling on it. But it saved that rabbit's life. It did. It was it was apparent it, uh, a rabbit kicked up right uh, at the end of the hunt, close to the truck, and ran directly away from a me. beautiful J route to you, and then <laughs> I got my attention. The J, yeah, the here I come, you know, like going around a, a, a greyhound ring, you know, like <laughs> here I come, and then ran directly away from you for like. Till it disappeared, like sixty or seventy. Yeah, at a trajectory where you need to do no aiming. Right, just point in that general direction. And I fling my shotgun up, and it, the sling is somehow tangled around it. You can't see, but I gave her a you know good blouch anyways. But no. just like off in that direction. Yeah, looking through a sling. Yeah, I was dumbfounded. You said <laughs> <laughs> you said the slings, and I couldn't see. I was like, ah. Because it was a, it was a, it wasn't a thin sling that when you have oh, no, like a, a padded shoulder. It's called a. Folks should know this. It's called what do they call those quakes? Yeah, <clears throat> quake sling. Those are some nice freaking slings, man. Yeah. What I do on them though, the hardware on them's no good when you buy them. What's that company that makes? Oh, uh, Grove Tech. I take the quake sling and cut the hard. One end you can just undo the hardware because it comes with, like Uncle Mike's on it. So on one end. Or some, I can't remember what hardware they use. But anyways, on one end, I undo. You can just undo it and put a Grove Tech mount on it. Grove Tech hardware on the other end. The other end, you actually got to cut through the stitching. Put a Grove Tech on there. You just order the Grove Techs online. Put a Grove Tech on there. Put it back. And then I got to get dental floss and my big-ass needle and redo all the stitching. And then you got to sling. And then you got live rabbits. Yeah. That should be should be in your bag. What, that was embarrassing. What a treat that would have been, that little added rabbit. I know, man. That was embarrassing. Dude, but, from a camera perspective, like me and Mike were like right there. You guys were just talking, and it just happened. Like for the camera, it just happened so naturally. And it would have been so cool. It's like the rabbit. I just see everything. Mike's on Parker. It's just like the scene was. I mean, it still was a fun scene, but like, yeah, if that 
rabbit got Did you hit. capture that? Oh, whole thing, man. Yeah. Yeah, we were right there. He really oh, wanted you. Really? Man. Yeah. It was like, I was like, this, this is Was happening. it over the shoulder? Over the shoulder, man. Everything. It was like the perfect Dude, setup. Dude, can we dig out that footage so I can use that footage oh, as a man. warning? Oh, for sure. As yeah. a warning to people. Yeah. yeah. That was embarrassing. I don't think you should be embarrassed. No. It was an issue. It's a sling yeah. I- issue. You couldn't see. I would have made fun of you if it, you'd have just missed that one, but. That, that it was, is nice to have that little crutch. That wasn't your that fault. That little thing. Yeah. That, that wasn't your fault. Oh, man. Anything else? Oh, I got a concluder. Um, after a lot, like our, our uh, merch store, it's been lackluster for a long time. But we're getting it really hardcore back up and running. And we just got in stock a whole bunch of uh, Meat Eater Podcast t-shirts, including our Blouch shirt. So if you go on to the, to the meateater.com and go into the store, you'll be able to get yourself a Meat Eater podcast t-shirt. And I was saying in the description that even if you don't know what it means, it's just a cool shirt with a weird word on it. <laughs> right? Keeps people guessing. You can go with the ladies in the bar and be like, check this out. What do you think that means? <laughs> I recently heard about a guy who goes to the bar and brings a... <laughs> I almost don't even want to bring this up. He, for some reason, puts Tic Tacs. He carries a thing of Tic Tacs around in his pocket. And he reaches, when he's talking to a woman in the bar, he reaches into his pocket and shakes that Tic Tac thing and goes, I hear a rattlesnake. Or there's a rattlesnake in my pants or something. I remember just thinking that, like, the quality of person that that's going to dredge up. I'd always use it as a filter of who I didn't, want i feel like the quality matches quality like if you're the type of dude to go into a bar and do that the person that you're gonna that get you're gonna net probably the, the person, person that that for. trick is gonna net yeah perfect match yeah it's, man. there's a rattlesnake in my pants <laughs> yeah that's what he says that's known as the low cull factor yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't cull many <laughs> i don't high grade <laughs> i don't high grade at the bar uh you know i actually got a double concluder because here's the deal uh, I go fish channel catfish every year. Um, I'm in the lower Yellowstone. And we have, over the years, go out there with my kids. And over the years, we have developed, we have perfected, between me and my bro, the perfect fried catfish sandwich. And we have a link to a video about how you can go. No, not a link. Just go watch the damn video. If you go to meateater.com. Or you can go to the show notes and find a link in the show notes. And you can see our video about how to make the perfect. It's not, it's like a, I, I like it because we make the sandwich with catfish, but it's good for anything. And in fact, I don't know, man, you can make the sandwich with any kind of fried fish. Rockfish, catfish, smallmouth bass, walleye, I don't care. But um, we break it all down in this video. And you can go check it out again. Go to meateater.com and you'll find the perfect catfish sandwich recipe or like i said link in the show notes and here's the deal is it's it's also captured in our forthcoming the meteor fishing game cookbook um so you can find it there as well uh any more concluders anyone ridge uh don't you don't make one up for no reason no i'm not making one up just oh. reflecting on the life of a river man and a squirrel man and that it's a good one it's mm-hmm. just a good rewarding rewarding life man you could see it i i could i yeah i could 
in a different life, I could be a part of it. <laughs> Fully. Yeah. That was on your fortune cookie last night. It was, yeah. Business opportunity. Trapping pigs. We're just living on a river, trying to avoid meth. <laughs> you think that'd be tough? <laughs> Stick to flatheads, man. <laughs> Seth, any final thoughts? Uh, that was just cool. Hanging out with you, Parker. Learned a lot. It's, yeah, thanks it for was coming. fun. It was a good time. It was fun. Yeah, and you grew up chasing the wily squirrel. Yeah, grew up chasing squirrels, but my first flathead experience. Good. So no flatheads in Pennsylvania. I don't. I don't even know. We never. There's something we just never pursued. No, you know what, I th- man? We caught a big flat one time out of. Uh, I think non-native there. We caught a big flat one time out of the Delaware. Did you? Between Pens- where it flows between Pennsylvania and New York. Yeah. I need to go back and look at a picture of that catfish, man. It was a long time ago, but I feel like I can't. Yeah. I feel we caught a big flat out of the Delaware. Knowing what I know now, if, you know, if I was back in Pennsylvania and I knew they had flats, I'd be all over them. Well, they're not like these ones. You know, I mean, I don't think there's not many places you're going to go out and get them like this. No. I, I spear gunned a big flat out of Lake Michigan. Because sometimes in the late summer, the lakes get so hot. You know the break walls they have? Are you familiar with the Great Lakes at all? No. You familiar with the break wall is? So, like, in the Great Lakes, all, like, you go on the western side of Lake Michigan. You have all the river systems that are, that are flowing west toward Lake Michigan. And the river systems usually pass through, like, a large, you know, you, like, like a large estuary, which would be, like, the lake. So, White Lake, Muskegon Lake are the river mouths. And so, the rivers will spill out. And they'll form these big lakes that form against the sand dunes that form the, 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 the shoreline of Lake Michigan. Gotcha. And then they'll hold back these big bodies of water, and then there'll be a channel that leads, that drains that lake out into Lake Michigan. And the channels used to migrate. But they eventually came in and channelized them with big channel walls. So they built channel walls for shipping so that ships could come off the Great Lakes. Yep through the channels into the big lakes and the cities are built around the big lakes and you had mills and you know coal fire generators and all the stuff that needed to get coal in lumber out all that um to protect those channel mouths the channelized channel mouths you'd build these break walls to bust up the surf and so they would just take riprap giant slabs of concrete and shit and build these big protective arms that sort of stretch out and come back in almost like a like a diamond shape with the points cut off it yep. to protect the channel from waves. And when the lakes get super warm, if it's a really hot late summer, the big flatheads would come out of there and go out and then live in those rock piles. Because it also gets so hot that a lot of suckers and stuff will come out or they're coming up from the depths in Lake Michigan, I don't know. But they'll come out and yellow perch will come in and all be living in those rocks where the water's nice, much cooler than inside. And the big flatheads will come out and land there. And you can, uh, there, you're allowed to spear gun. There's only certain things you can spear gun or, or shoot with a bow, but catfish are among them. And I went out one time when we were diving down, spearing red horse suckers, but I ran into and speared a giant flathead out in Lake Michigan. So in that way, I'm among a very small, small minority of the American population who spearheaded a flathead out of Lake Michigan. Yeah. Two or three dudes are going to write in and be, I did it too, but it's a small subset of the American population. 
Yeah. The Despair Flat Lake, Michigan. Yeah, any of you? No. See? Told you. <laughs> That's my concluder. <laughs> Michael? Um, I had a great time. You well, enjoyed it? Yeah. Following you guys. And by the way, I did bleed Good. a few times, more the first day. But yeah, that was a fun first time filming you guys. Been watching the show for a while, so it was kind of weird to be following you. But it's helpful because you probably knew what we, uh, how it goes. Yeah. What it looks like. Yep. It did help. And I'm excited to eat some catfish and squirrel. Yanni? Me too, man. But my concluding thought is we need to cut this, shut it down because I need to go and uh, apply some anti-itch cream. (laughs) (laughs) All right, turn it off. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.